The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today we are bringing you a roundtable episode just in time for Halloween, all about Michael Jackson's spookiest short film, Ghosts. This 1996 short film, starring Michael Jackson and directed by special effects wizard Stan Winston, was written by Stephen King and Mick Garris. The film stars Michael in five roles, with the final edit of the film featuring songs like Too Bad, Is It Scary and Ghosts, all from Michael's mid-90s albums, History and Blood on the Dance Floor. Ghosts was shown in select theatres alongside the horror film Thinner and had its official premiere in 1997 at Cannes Film Festival and also in Sydney. It was released a year later on Laserdisc, VHS and Video CD. Ghosts tells the story of the maestro, an eccentric individual with supernatural powers, who is subject to condemnation from the local town mayor and a mob of citizens. They want him gone. But with the help of his ghoulish friends, the maestro uses humor, music, dance, and wisdom to hold a mirror up to the mayor and the society which has condemned him. Fun, chaos, and emotion unfolds. Ghosts has an interesting story in that it actually began its production journey pre-1993 under the title, Is It Scary?, with a totally different director, Mick Garris. It was planned for release alongside the film Adam's Family Values, but following contract disputes, the Adam's Family connection was dropped. Eventually, Michael Jackson resurrected the project a few years later and brought Stan Winston on board. At the time, Ghosts was the most expensive music video ever made, reportedly reaching $15 million, all paid for by Jackson himself. It also held the world record of being the longest music video ever until Pharrell Williams' Happy. Of course, in the years between the original Ghosts, which was to some extent filmed but never released, and the eventually released 1997 Ghosts, Michael Jackson himself famously found himself subject to heinous child sexual abuse allegations and scathing commentary by the mainstream media that had been developing since the late 80s. Many of the themes within the film are believed by fans to be commentary by Michael on how society ended up treating him. The film is considered by many to be an allegory for Michael's adult life, echoing those themes all the way until Michael tragically passed away in June 2009. So without any further ado, let's meet the family. Today on this roundtable, I have with me three amazing individuals who are going to help me dissect ghosts. Firstly, making her MJ cast debut, Hannah Savage, all the way from Studio Ohio. We love the work Hannah does on her YouTube channel, having made brilliant documentaries about Blood on the Dance Floor, Invincible, and many more topics. Hannah, welcome to the MJ cast. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We're really excited to have you here. It's been a long time coming. We're huge fans, and yeah, we can't wait to get into this chat with you. How are you doing today? 
I'm good. I'm so excited to get into this. I feel like a lot of people um, sleep on blood on the dance floor and ghosts and like this whole era in general. So I'm glad we're bringing awareness to it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And we'll talk a little bit more about the documentary you made later in the show, but let's just say that it helped me a lot in planning for this episode. <laughs> also, returning to the MJ cast, professional film editor and MJ fan extraordinaire, Mr. Paul Black, calling in from Studio Sydney. Paul, how are you? I'm great. How you going, guys? Good to be here. Doing really well. It's been a, a while since you've been on the show. I remember that you came on a few years ago to talk about mainly uh, Thriller. We also talked about Ghosts then as well. And uh, during that recording, you were also here with the final guest that I'll introduce today. Lastly, making his triumphant return to the MJ cast and now being upgraded officially to the title of MJ cast veteran. We're very lucky to get on the line director of one of my favorite Thriller films of all time, Frozen and the Hatchet series, the master of horror, all the way from Studio Los Angeles, Adam Green. How are you, Adam? I am great. I'm so happy to be back four years later, especially with my best friend in the whole world, Paul Black, and uh, I'm a big <laughs> Hannah Savage fan, so I'm very happy to be here. Uh, this is this is going to be so good. I'm, I'm just so excited because we have got a pretty good panel here, I'm going to say. You know, Hannah, you've done your research on this whole era. Paul, you, you professionally edit films. Adam, you professionally write and direct films. So I, I feel like we've got the perfect panel here to dig into this <laughs> to ghosts. We're going to try. We're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, we've got a structure here to our discussion today, and we're going to move through these topics in, in, in a sequence. So we're going to start off with the story of ghosts and the, the screenplay and, and all the themes that are discussed in it before moving eventually into the music and then the choreography. We're going to touch on the cinematography and editing. And then eventually we'll, we'll talk as well about how the short film Ghosts compares to some of Michael's other work, especially Thriller and the legacy of Ghosts really moving forward. And then we might chat about some other little random fun topics like the, the box set and who might have got that when it came out in the late 90s. Let's go ahead here and, and jump into the story. I'll kick things off a little bit before handing over to you guys, but I watched it last night for the first time all the way through in a couple of years. So I've watched bits and pieces of it, you know, over the last while, but I've never sat down and watched all 37 minutes or whatever it is for a couple of years at this point. So I, I gave it a go last night. I had to make sure my kids were in bed. They're, they're pretty young, so <laughs> I didn't want to scare the crap out of Olivia. Yeah, I watched it all the way through. What struck me about it in terms of the story was just how much depth there is really around how Michael was treated in his actual life and how that sort of mirrored in, you know, in the film. And we sort of know the journey of Ghosts and how it was originally filmed to some extent. We don't know how much of it exactly was filmed or like how completed it was, but there was a version of it that was created in the early 90s. And it's amazing how that was created and it was scripted before a lot of the terrible things went down in Michael's life, even, and how much, you know, some of it came true. And, you know, Michael himself, I think, was always an outsider to some extent, although that was kind of self-imposed, really, to some degree. And really, I think the film is a criticism on those people around him who judged him. And we know it starts with, you know, people coming at him with pitchforks and torches and brings to mind terrible images of lynch mobs and different things. And it's interesting to see how I thought how the adult citizens sort of seem to despise Michael or at the very least be wary of him. But the kids that are there seem to really love him. I also love how Michael literally and figuratively holds up a mirror 
to the mayor to show him really how grotesque these people have become. It's, you know, there's a lot of depth in it, I think. And I want to hand over to Hannah for a sec, because Hannah, you've put together that incredible documentary on the blood on the dance floor era. And a lot of that touches on ghosts and its depth. What stands out to you story-wise as, as the heart of the ghost film and what message is it trying to portray? I think the main thing is that Michael was just trying to portray that everyone just thought he was a freak during that time. And I think earlier, like in the early nineties version, it's more raw and it's more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's more just in your face with it. Like they were really just going in on him in there. Like it's, it's, because in the ghosts version, there's just a lot of emphasis on them calling him a freak, like freaky boy, freaky freakster. It's just that. Because that's just how everyone saw him after the trial and even before the trials. Um, I don't feel like any of anyone really ever tried to give Michael a chance. And he really wanted more than just younger children to give him a chance. I feel like he wanted just the general public to like him. And maybe he'd be more willing to give, I guess, adults a chance, you know, and he maybe wanted to portray that this is why he would associate himself more with kids because they don't judge him. They never saw him as a freak. All of the children in the film were so kind and loving and caring, and they didn't think he was scary. It was the adults. They were the ones that wanted him out of town. Like the mayor just came up in his house and was like, you're scaring our children. You're weird. We want you out of here. But all the kids just thought his jokes were funny. They thought the whole act with everything was just cool. So I think it's just mainly that. That's what I mainly gather from it. I think Hannah just really hit it on the head because one of the biggest things that we all face when we're inevitably defending Michael Jackson to some ignorant douchebag, when they're like, well, who would want to hang around kids? And it's like all of us, we all want to hang around with people that accept us and embrace us. And this guy was treated so badly by the media, by most adults. Once he became super, super famous in the late eighties, he was so criticized and ridiculed. So it kind of makes sense. Like kids didn't want anything from him. Kids didn't treat him differently. Plus there's the whole added thing about never having had a childhood. He would rather have water gun fights or play arcade games then go to clubs most of the time. Ghost really does illustrate it. I also though think that that's part of the reason why it wasn't embraced more when it first came out, because by the time this came out, it was so on the nose and so in your face that a lot of people got turned off by that. And that's unfortunate because really it's such a terrific spectacle of everything that was happening in filmmaking at the time. I mean, Chuck Russell's The Mask had come out, I think two years earlier. And it's a lot of that same technology with Michael's face stretching and all that stuff that they did in The Mask. But it was the best way to incorporate the makeup, the dance, all the different camera trickery, all the different CG stuff that they were doing at the time. And it really is a gift to the world. And it's sad that so many people slept on it and that here in America, you barely even knew it was out. Yeah. I think what's really interesting to me is just the origin of the story and the fact that it was created 
and originally conceived of, you know, with Stephen King's involvement, etc., way before any of the allegations surfaced. So, you know, and I think back to the speech he did at the at the Grammy Living Legend Award around, you know, 93 that time when he said, you know, I wasn't aware that the world thought I was so weird and bizarre. And I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, he's obviously aware of that. You just, you, you don't often, you know, think he's a human being. You just see him in the media at that time. And that was the first time he'd really spoken out and said, you know, I'm hearing that, you know, I hear what you say about me. And I wasn't aware that you all thought I was this freak. So the origin of the story was kind of that original in a weird way, just more of a, a comment on that side of things, the fact that he was living his life, doing his thing, and everybody was commenting on it and in the media, and they just thought he was a freak. It wasn't aimed at anything more sinister than that. But by the time it obviously got released, it just kind of was seen in a different light because of everything that had transpired. So it's kind of like this weird twist of fate where it sort of began as just saying, you all think I'm a freak, and you shouldn't judge people and, you know, what's wrong with spreading joy. And then it sort of evolved by the time it actually got released in 96, which was the first, you know, when it was made and officially first premiered, a lot had happened. So the evolution of that story took on a whole new tone and you can kind of conceive of the fact that maybe they've kind of included that in the story like they didn't just take the 93 version they kind of took it further and said let's enhance it but the original seed of it came from a different place and it sort of evolved so I just remember when I first saw it thinking wow this is really really you know bold of Michael to sort of put that out there on the screen and, and allow people you know through his art in a project that he is putting out there for the world to have people calling his character a freak, but it's clearly, even though it's his character, it's Michael Jackson. It's not him a huge stretch playing a character that's, it's, you know, it's sort of a very obviously, it's Michael Jackson standing there saying, this is how you treat me. So anyway, the evolution of that story and just the whole way that kind of came out, I just thought was a really fascinating progression. I sort of always have those feelings when I watch it of, of just remembering that era and, and how I felt when I first saw it. Yeah, I feel really the same way. I'm actually super curious about the whole Stephen King involvement thing, and I'm glad you brought that up because there's a good there's an interview I think Michael gave when he was in Australia for the History World Tour. I think he was speaking to Molly Meldrum, and he's talking about the ghost film and Stephen King. And but still to this day, I don't think there is an interview out there. There might be. It'd be great if one of our listeners could send it to me if it exists. There is. There is a brief um, interview that came out recently on uh what was the name of that podcast that just came out recently that was a little bit think twice that's the one yeah they actually dug up a, some audio from stephen king from back in the day talking about how michael came to him and presented this idea of what he wanted to do uh again based on that original concept of just saying hey imagine you know that people come and try and call this guy a freak and run him out of town kind of thing very much in 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 the vein of a lot of Stephen King's work around the early nineties was that kind of feel to it, the town and the this and that, those kinds of those ideas. Yeah. So there is a bit of audio out there. So I think from my understanding, the Genesis was that Michael came to Stephen King and then I think Mick, Dar Mick Garris got on board and then they were going to, you know, do the whole thing that way. And then later it ended up being Stan Winston once, once Mick was unavailable. So as a, 
diehard Stephen King fan, I don't really think there's anything in the finished product of Ghosts that feels Stephen King. It feels like his name is involved because he was involved and because his name carries a lot of weight in anything horror or thriller related. But it's such a simple story. It just doesn't really scream Stephen King. And I don't think if his name wasn't in the credits, I don't think anybody would be like, I bet Stephen King had something to do with this. <laughs> I think it's just the intro. The intro with the townspeople and the torches and the world feels a little bit like a lot of those Stephen King movie adaptations that were on at the time. But yeah, beyond that, you're probably right there. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear like from him if he was to give like a, you know, a more contemporary interview and go into a bit more depth about it around some of those conversations because surely Michael would have been talking to him in the very early 90s if it was filmed in 93 he would have been talking to him before that I'm imagining that Michael must have been pretty reflective in those conversations with Stephen about how the world perceived him even at that time yeah it just shows incredible depth and insight I think into Michael as a person even before the allegations broke out he at least knew or understood that the world perceived his relationship, you know, with children to be a certain way. Agreed. There is a Stephen King movie that reminds me of this. It's a more recent one though. It's about aliens coming to the planet and they're all hiding out in like a mall or no, like a, like a food store. Oh, oh, the mist, the mist. So the mist, I don't know, like obviously the story broadly doesn't, it, doesn't have a connection, but that whole concept of there being this group of townspeople all stuck together dealing with something like typical, you know, sort of like uh, townsfolk that, I mean, that that's, that's kind of a little connection, but like Paul said, like the intro to the the thing is the only thing that really feels Stephen King to me. <laughs> Once frankly, we get I still think that's it. It's the origin of the story where they got together and come up with a simple concept. But beyond that, I do love though, that, when the adults are all following the mayor and they're on their way up there, they hate this guy and they want him gone. And then from the moment they pass through the gates, other than the mayor, they're all kind of second guessing the choices they're making. Even once they see the maestro, they don't really think he's that bad necessarily. I did enjoy that about it because not only is it showing the herd mentality of society, yeah, let's go get him. But then once you're actually in front of that person, you sort of back down. And the mayor is sort of on his own island from that point forward. They're still there backing him up, but you know, they're laughing when he's doing those faces and you know, trying not to enjoy it. But there's also something to Michael Jackson's videos, especially thriller and ghosts, that is so unrealistic in terms of people just standing there and watching people dance that would never happen in real life but uh <laughs> ghosts they stand there for what like 25 minutes and just watch <laughs> this stuff happen <laughs> and all i can think about is shooting that because when they shot the cutaways of of the you know the adults and children watching there was nothing happening and they must have been there for hours being like, all right, now you're impressed. Okay, now look over there and point. Now, like that must have felt so awkward for so long. That's all I can see when I watch it. But that's well, hey, I'm most sure. definitely needed to get his career started somehow. So come on. Exactly, right? <laughs> uh <laughs> I'm glad you're like mentioning some of the things about it that, that are a little awkward because I want to get into that too soon. That like 
it's not the perfect film. <laughs> it's charming and it's great to watch, and but there are some aspects to it that I think are a little bit funky. Still on the story, though, and I want to bring Hannah back in here because, you know, Hannah, you have done a documentary, like I said, about the Blood on the Dance Floor era and also Invincible, and now you're working on a This Is It documentary. So you have really specialised, I guess, in your work in that latter portion of Michael's life. And, and as I was watching it last night, what stood out to me, I think, is the most touching or emotional part is when, you know, that, that moment where Michael seems to give up and he kind of smashes himself into dust on the floor and there's that orchestral, beautiful orchestral score in the background and the wind ends up blowing his remnants away after being rejected and defeated by the townspeople. And I don't know, just for me, it's it's spooky how that kind of echoes beyond even into his later career. You know, when he, he went out with a whimper rather than a bang in 2009. But still in the end, there's hope that, you know, in, in the film Ghost, there's hope at least that he's triumphant and winning over everybody and people are still in the end going to see him as a, a fun-loving guy. I'm just wondering in your work, you know, when as you've been working in some of these darker aspects of his life, especially in the This Is It era, do you see parallels there as well? Yeah, I I definitely do. I was actually watching the earlier version earlier um, and with Michael kind of just like disintegrating, I feel like it kind of could represent that like everyone's actions have consequences with everyone kind of just always making fun of Michael and trying to take him down, I guess you could say that it got to him and he just wanted to disappear. He just wanted to pull back. He just wanted to, at times, just be completely left alone and disappear from all of it, not be famous anymore, not come back into the spotlight, just be done. And if you bring it back to like the early version, the children put him back together. And then that kind of brings it back to him saying things that like, you know, if it wasn't for the children of the world, you know, he doesn't know where he would be. And then, you know, as things would come out surrounding his death, all these photos of like his bedroom would come out. You'd see like pictures of babies, like in his room and like everything. And I feel like the children of the world really gave him like a sense of purpose just like that future generation really gave him a purpose even his own children gave him purpose and even bring that into why he even embarked on this is it and even during that time period since it was like 96 97 you know he was raising a family of his own he had just had his first son and i feel like that brought brightness into his world again I'm so glad that Hannah just brought up the earlier cut where the children are the ones who actually put him back together because I wish they had kept it that way in the final one. I understand why they didn't necessarily show him come back together because they saved it for a reveal that he was back together. But that was so poignant. And I think Paul and I mentioned this in our thriller ghost comparison episode four years ago, but that bit where he starts smashing his face is so upsetting to me and in the best way possible. But I just feel like in this piece that a lot of people could say is bloated and it's overdone, whatever, whatever negative things people want to say, there are so many beautiful moments. I mean, the first one being the first time that classical music really comes into it and all the ghosts slowly float down and you see all of these characters for the beautiful things that they are. 
but that moment where he smashes his own face with the ridicule that he took about his face specifically, it's just really upsetting to watch. I loved seeing the kids put him back together and I wish that was in the final version of it. Mm, that's really interesting. I remember uh, seeing that part and I just feel like it's, it's, it's sort of, try- I mean, what he was trying to say, I think was, look, if you push someone too far, you know, this is what will happen. He's basically saying, you know, they, they confront him. He tries to reason with them. He tries to have some fun with them. He tries to sort of say, look, you know, when we're all different, you shouldn't judge people. What's going on? What, there's nothing wrong here. It's all fine. And yet he's like, okay, fine. And then he smashes himself into the ground. I mean, it's very dark, really. It's quite powerful to say, you know, look, if you keep pushing people and if you keep, you know, trying to say, hey, get the hell out of here. We don't like your kind you know, someone's going to do something bad. And that was sort of his way, I think, of trying to say, look, fine, if you want me to go, I'll go. And I remember seeing that the first time, just thinking, wow, that's really quite dark. And that whole thing of his face just crumbling and falling apart, which we've spoken about before, yeah, is is kind of like poetic, but dark, but sort of tragic in a way because of what the media said about his face falling apart. And yet he's now putting that in his own art He's showing his face falling apart because it's like, that's what you want to see. This is what you think. This is what you say about me. Well, here it is. I'm now presenting that to you. How do you feel about that? He's trying to get people to reflect and think about how they treat people. I think that was intention. his intention, whether or not you know people took it that way or it was successful or not, uh, I guess is up for debate. But I remember at the time, you know, you look at it now, maybe certain parts of the whole film seem a little hokey and dated. But at the time, I just remember feeling the impact of that. Definitely. Social media obviously existed before Michael passed, but it wasn't the hellscape that it is now. I'm just so glad that Michael didn't have to live for like the worst of Twitter and stuff, you know, because obviously I think he would have known better than to personally be on there. And there just would have been, you know, an assistant somewhere posting information or whatever. It's just disgusting how people treat each other when they can stay anonymous or hide behind a keyboard. There is something now about watching ghosts and him acknowledging, I know this is what you say. And so here it is. And that part I think gets stronger with time. Well, another thing that we didn't mention was that the mayor character, like the way he looked could have been, well, I know in my video, I had said it was loosely based off Tom Schneiden, but that was actually like an error on my part because it was actually based off of Sheriff H.C. Strider, who enabled a corrupt investigation of Emmett Till's murder. And Emmett Till was like this 14-year-old African-American that was brutally beaten to the point of being unrecognizable, all because he supposedly whistled at this white woman and he was thrown into a river and Sheriff Strider basically said he didn't believe that the body in the river was Emmett Till's and that he was still alive. And because of that, the real killers were let go. And I kind of personally wanted to touch on this because I would say maybe like after bad and even onto dangerous, people love to say that Michael hated where he came from as far as his African-American roots. And that's not true at all. And I don't know how many times and how many different languages he could say he was proud of who he was, but this little detail even shows that. Love those thoughts, Hannah. Thank you. One of the things that maybe hasn't stood the test of time. I don't know how you guys all feel about this, but especially when I'm watching Ghost as compared to some of Michael's other videos, and and I don't mean just Thriller, 
but there's a quality to this particular short film that doesn't seem to be there in any of his other, or maybe black or white it's there, but it's this kind of humor that I don't think exists too much these days in serious entertainment or serious work. And it's, it's kind of like that Disney channel sort of humor with, yes. um, and, and it's kind of goofy and you just don't see that much now. And but that's, that's so Michael Jackson though. He gets Halloween. Halloween is supposed to be spooky. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be for the kids. It's supposed to, well, I mean, really it's supposed to be about remembering those who aren't with us anymore, but it's not about the scariest, most disturbing. I mean, sure. People like me love that stuff, but it's, I think thriller and this, there's a sense of fun to them where yeah, if you're too young, maybe there's some imagery in it that'll scare you a little bit, but it's safe. And it's like a Disney ride. Like when you go on the Haunted Mansion, you're never scared. You're smiling the whole time, even though it's telling you the whole time, this is scary. It's spooky. It's it's not. I'm so glad you brought up uh, Disney Channel because Disney, first of all, Disneyland, whenever you go to Disney World or Disneyland, if you pay attention it is so morbid. There's skulls everywhere. There's death all around you, but most people don't really see that. But even a lot of the best rides, it's made to make you think you're going to get hurt. And that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, but when you think back to like the legend of sleepy hollow, which for a lot of us, that was the first like traumatizing thing because the cartoon version with Ichabod crane and the headless horseman, it's all fun. And then, when that headless horseman rises up with that purple and orange background and that laugh comes in and you and you watch Ichabod and Bullet, his horse, run for their lives and it's and he dies. He gets him in the end. And that was a children's cartoon. And I mean, Disney was great at stuff like that. Like there's one called The Mad Doctor from the 30s that was banned even in Nazi Germany because it was too messed up for kids. This mad doctor steals Pluto and he's going to cut his head off and replace it with a chicken's head. And it, it's really dark. It's on YouTube. You can find it. But I do love that Michael was able to do horror and keep it fun. Always keep it fun. It never went too far. And that was it just like his music. It was accessible to the world. Everybody could appreciate everything he did. I'm a metalhead. I say this all the time. My favorite bands are like Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Twisted Sister. But above all is Michael Jackson. And that is the genius of him. I think it's really interesting because Michael got into this sort of Halloween horror type thing way back when, you know, he, he did Thriller. And, and in all those interviews, he's talking about, you know, seeing American Werewolf in London. And he's saying, you know, it was comedy and horror. That's the way he saw it. So it's like he took that sort of inspiration that John Landis had in a lot of his work already and sort of took it through everything he did in that vein. And and that's the thing. It's not meant to be scary, scary. It's meant to be kind of a little bit fun and comedy and hokey and just entertainment and just trying to do something, you know, that's exciting and fun. And it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. And yeah, the Disney thing's the perfect example in terms of like Disneyland, because, you know, Michael loved going on all the rides and he wanted everything to be like going on a ride at Disneyland. It's a roller coaster. It's up and down. It's it's fun. It's scary. It has these moments. It has those moments. You know, he wanted to create that kind of an experience. And so that's kind of what he tried to do with ghosts. I mean, he threw 
the kitchen sink at it and put everything in it. And it's a little <laughs> over bloated and there's probably too much of certain ingredients, but that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to give you a fun entertainment experience that has, you know, deeper messages and personal messages to him and deeper meaning but it also has a little bit of fun and a bit of a bit of scary stuff and some cool effects. And he just wanted to put that whole entertainment package with the dancing and the performance and just present that as sort of his little masterpiece. Yeah, I hear what you mean. I just feel like with Thriller, it's although it's tongue-in-cheek and very self-aware, it's got like a, a little bit more of a professional tone, I guess I could say. Like Ghosts is very much like the the humor is seriously cheesy. Like the line delivery, the acting is all seriously cheesy. I think some of the dialogue, particularly of the townspeople, not so much Michael Jackson, but uh, definitely like the mother when she says, don't hit your brother. And that that kind of cheesy stuff. It it reminds me of uh, dialogue in some other Michael Jackson videos as well, like Magic Johnson in Remember the Time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or in in Black or White, the father, you know, when he gets knocked out of the roof at the start of the video and the mother says, I'm afraid your father is going to be very upset when he gets back. (laughs) Just that kind of, that kind of cheese ball stuff. I'm just wondering, because I never saw it when it came out in the late 90s. I only ever saw it probably for the first time you know, in the mid 2000s, really. And a lot of time had passed in terms of, you know, how work was presented between the 90s and the 2000s. And I'm just wondering when it came out in the late 90s, even when you were watching it there, was one of your takeaways like, oh, wow, that those lines were delivered in a pretty cheesy, silly way. You know, did it have that vibe to it even then? Or is that something that's come along later because of how it's dated? Well, a lot of things date, you know, but as many of you guys know, like I was very fortunate to see Ghost for the very first time at the world premiere, which is in November 1996. So I was there to see it at the time of its release in context of, of how everyone watched things and felt about things at that time. And at the world premiere, Michael Jackson attended. This was in Sydney. And so, you know, I was sitting in the cinema watching it with Michael Jackson five rows behind me. So I have a personal connection with it where I'll always remember that first time, you know, when you see something for the first time and it it touches you or you have that experience, you're always going to carry that with you. And that's one of the reasons people become fans of things. So I have a slightly different personal connection to it than someone who might have just sort of seen it, you know, 10 years later or 20 years later. But at the time, you know, we were loving it. It was like Michael on screen for 40 minutes doing the most amazing cool things for the time the special effects at the time looked incredible all the skeleton stuff and all these things he was doing new choreography and dancing and he was you know acting and doing all these things and the way he delivered all his lines you know particularly some of those ones where he's like you know meet the family and game time hello it was just like wow that's so cool and he was standing up for himself, even though he's playing a character. We just thought it was awesome. So, yeah, maybe if you look at it now, you might look at it out of that context of its time and how it stands up now, and you might sort of judge it in a different way. But at the time, if you look at a lot of the films that were out around that time or the different things that were happening, you know, in the 90s, particularly the early 90s where this was sort of generated, because I do feel like that early 90s version probably would have been even more hokey and the parts we've seen I think are even a little more kind of Disney-esque and and just sort of in tune with what the Adams Family films were doing at the time and I feel like the 96 version 
got a little bit more sinister in terms of adding that subtext of what's happened to Michael with the allegations. So I think they steered it a little bit more towards that in a way. So I think it would have been even more hokier at the time. So, yeah, I don't see it as something that's, you know, particularly uh, out of touch or hokey or, or cheesy, but, you know, it's it's Michael Jackson. Everything he did was, you know, of a certain style and everything he did was of its time. And it was the mid-90s. It was sort of a weird time. I, I look back at films that were coming out, you know, for me, and it's different for everyone, but for me, you know, the glory years of the 80s and all the films that were coming out when Thriller came out and, you know, stuff throughout the bad era, it was a different time. When we got to the mid-90s, to me personally, everything was a little bit, you know, drier and less exciting. It wasn't quite as magical to me, you know, sort of going through the sort of 90s and the grunge era. It was just a different feel everything is going to feel of its time. I don't necessarily think that, um, yeah, it, it stands up as well as it could. But, you know, at the time, we all thought it was awesome. Talk to us more about that experience. So you, I mean, we can't just gloss over that, Paul. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you were there watching Ghosts with Michael Jackson five rows yeah. back. So, and, and how did that happen? Like, how did you end up there? What was the experience like? Do you have any recollections of his reactions to the audience? Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing time. We'd heard Ghost existed, but back then, no internet, no anything. So we knew that this thing was being made. We were we were in Sydney for the tour, and we had no idea that Ghost was going to be a part of anything, but it, it, it was announced that it was going to be shown in a cinema. And we thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. Went and bought tickets to a 10 p.m. session. And this was the night after the concert. We're like, perfect. We had, we had two concerts. This is happening in between. We'll go to that. It's going to be great. Then they announced that they were going to do the world premiere and Michael was going to be there earlier on that evening at the same cinema. And we got invited to that because we were sort of prominent fans. We were around there and his entourage and everything saw us and thought, hey, do you guys want a, a VIP invite to this thing? And it was just right place, right time. And we just got lucky. And and so we went along to this premiere. He'd, he'd been at the, the concert the night before. He got married to Debbie Rowe at the hotel that night. And then the next night he went to this ghost premiere. So it was a crazy, crazy, it was like the sort of stuff you dream about and see on, on videos, all the 80s stuff where everything's crazy and there's crushes of fans and there was a big security breach trying to get him out of the cinema and everyone went nuts and there was just people screaming and running and breaking barriers and crawling over things. So it was an amazing experience. But, yeah, we were inside the cinema and Michael Jackson was brought in once we were already inside and essentially we were sitting in the back five rows. There was a wall and five rows in front of that wall and all his entourage and dancers and crew and everything was sitting in that five rows. So we were sort of sitting in that row and then Michael's ended up sitting five rows behind us just in front of the wall for security kind of reasons, you know? So yeah, it was amazing. Like all of a sudden Michael Jackson's in this quiet movie theater, which is not like a, an outdoor venue where everyone's screaming. It was like this sort of soundproof, you know, venue, small intimate thing. And, and Michael Jackson's there and you kind of just think, wow, there he is. And it was quiet. So we just started having a conversation with him and you know, just bouncing back things and talking to him and asking him what he thinks of Australia and all this. And then eventually we sat down and watched the movie. And I've said this before, it was just so hard to watch the film knowing Michael Jackson sitting right behind you and thinking, well, this is a rare once in a lifetime 
a chance to see Michael Jackson in person. So we kept turning around and looking at him and, and I wanted to see what his reaction was. You know, I wanted to see like, you know, when Michael's on the screen dancing, I wanted to look around and go, how proud is he? What is he thinking? Is he enjoying it? And then you get to some of the more darker moments, you know, like when he's smashing his face into the ground, it's like, Oh, wow. You know, and you're sort of looking around and seeing, you know, how's he responding to this? And, and the biggest thing I remember at the end, which I've spoken about before, is when the film finally finished and the credits are about to come up, everyone just did a 180 and started turning around, looking at Michael and cheering and clapping. And, and Michael's trying to point to the screen and say, no, 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 look at this. Because I think in his mind, he was thinking, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm about to reveal that I was the mayor all along and I'm going to show you the makeup and how I did it. We all knew, but I think he was sort of trying to say, no, we're showing you how we did it. So he kept pointing at the screen and telling us to all watch the making of where they played the ghost song and and we're all just going, oh, my God, it's Michael Jackson. And it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, you know, during that whole film screening, everyone was just cheering and screaming and going nuts. I mean, not only was it mostly, you know, fans and friends and people who were into this, but Michael Jackson's there. And if anyone's ever been to a premiere when the stars are there, there's always that extra added vibe and people seem to enjoy the movie even more because, you know, it's Michael Jackson there in person. So the reaction was incredible. Everyone was laughing at all the jokes and screaming and going, yeah, Michael and cool. And it was just like the best time ever. And then after that, everything went a bit nuts and security and whatever. And somehow in amongst all of that, crazy crush I ended up face to face with him and talking to him and trying to get him to sign something and then we all got ushered <laughs> out of the cinema it was just like a crazy sort of crazy pinch yourself uh, experience but I guess that's what I'm saying overall is that I've had an experience that was very personal to me and was was I was there at the time when it came out to see it as fresh as you could have possibly seen it this was the first time anywhere, it was shown anywhere in the world. It was shown in, in Japan a month later and then at the Cannes Film Festival in 97. But this was the first time anyone was seeing it. So you can't get fresher than that. And I sort of carry with me those memories and that first impression and that experience. And then after all of that, we went and saw it a few more times at the cinema. So, yeah, it's a different experience than sort of, you know, coming to it much later. And as as we've talked about, it, it was barely acknowledged and shown in the US. And, you know, it was it was not really the kind of distribution that you would have got for something like Thriller back in the day. Mm. Which must have been incredibly disappointing for Michael. And honestly, like your introduction sounds like the perfect introduction anybody <laughs> could ever have to this film. Mine was terrible. Mine was like streaming the short version of the song Ghosts. In, right. in the lowest quality you could imagine on that pre-YouTube Michael Jackson streaming website, Jetsy or whatever it was called. Like, honestly, <laughs> honestly, yeah. I mean, I mean, Jamie, yeah, you're I, a fan of the 30th anniversary concerts. That's what made you a fan, right? Yeah. That's what made me in a, a lot of ways. So you Which have, is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you have an attachment to that. I do. And it's I can different. see its flaws, but, but I'm really attached to that. Exactly. It, so that's yeah. my point. It's like you have this sort of personal connection because it made you kind of open your eyes and maybe go down that rabbit hole and become a fan. Right. And everyone else will just be like, you know, 30th anniversary, what a, what a disaster. And but you'll have a different <laughs> 
it's the same as the history tour. I mean, people say, oh, the history tour is terrible and, you know, it's the worst tour he ever did. And, you know, I can't really argue with competing with some of the best tours he did. But because I was there and was able to see the shows, I've got these memories. And, you know, if you sort of think, if you have a choice between never seeing Michael Jackson live or in person ever, or getting to see the best thing that's available to you at the time, which to us was the history tour. I still got to see Michael Jackson moonwalk and perform Billie Jean and do the extended dance break right in front of my eyes. Like I got to witness that. And even though there's all the talk of, you know, lip syncing and this, that, and the other, I mean, I always think, look, most fans would say, oh, if I could be a fly on the wall or be in the room to see Motown 25, that would have been Billie Jean, like amazing. I wish I could have been there. That would be like amazing. And so he was lip syncing Motown 25. So it was just about witnessing the genius of his art and his performance. So anyway, so I'm just trying to point out that people see things through different lenses. But if you have a personal attachment to something because you were part of it or you were there or it was how you were introduced, you're going to see it differently. So I will always have fond memories of Ghost purely because I was there at the time. You know, if I could rewrite history, I would have loved to have been there in the bad era at the time or, or Victory Tour or something. But you know, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity to to witness Michael presenting his work, you know, while he was with us and being able to yeah. enjoy that as much as I could. I get you. I can relate to that for sure. Like, I mean, Star Wars films, for example, you know, the the, the prequels, <laughs> they're not the best films in the world, but they were coming out when I was a teenager. So it's kind of, I've got a strong attachment to them as well as the original ones. So I, I totally get what you mean. All right. Now let's move into the music that's in the film. And I was really hoping, Hannah, that you might be able to walk us through this section a little bit because, I mean, I know, and Paul will probably touch on this a bit later when we, we start talking about the editing of the film because my understanding is the the version of the film that you saw in 1996 was different to the one that was eventually released to the public as a part of the Ghosts box set. And 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 I think you've told me before that apart from the song Ghosts in the Credit, the only song that featured in the film was Too Bad. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, Hannah, you've made a documentary on the Blood on the Dance Floor era. So do you want to walk us through what songs ended up finding their way into the finished version of the film that got released? Yeah. So in the final version of the film you've got too bad is this scary and ghosts and personally i'm just gonna say too bad's probably my favorite so i'm just gonna throw that out there i agree i second that or third that i think that perhaps those songs just helped with telling the story better is this scary in particular i think goes really well with the film because I think I discussed in my documentary, How Is This Scary, talks about how MJ might have been a little bit paranoid, perhaps, about how the public sees him. And a lot of that is portrayed in the film. I'm just thinking too, like, I mean, around that time, you've got Sony Music wanting to release the Blood on the Dance Floor album, right? So that comes out in 97. And Ghost comes out in between History and Blood on the Dance Floor. So did Sony go, okay, we've got this horror film thing that Michael did, which has Too Bad in it that was from History. But we also know that he worked with Teddy Riley on a bunch of other 
kind of horror themed songs like ghosts and is it scary and that kind of stuff should we just put out another album that includes that kind of themed material and then chuck it in the box set with ghosts and call it a day yeah i mean i think in like in hannah in your documentary i think you covered that pretty well i mean essentially between the two legs of the tour they thought wow it's been you know a few years since history and we're just about to do this you know leg of the history tour it's let's let's put out some other project to market it which became blood on the dance floor and you know watch hannah's documentary if you want to know all about that because it goes into more depth about you know the fact that michael wanted an ep and then there's remixes and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on it was not a project or a product that michael really wanted to put out there necessarily the way he wanted and i believe it's the same thing with ghost ghost was this project that he conceived of in 1993 and he never intended to have a whole bunch of songs in it back then, except, you know, whatever the lead single might have been. It was supposed to be a 10, 15 minute short film because, you know, I mean, while we're talking about that, even the 40 minute ghost film was shot and intended to be a 10 to 15 minute piece. But they shot so much and they did so much that it just ended up becoming this let's say bloated <laughs> let's expanded version i think there's even some stuff in the making of where where stan winston's telling michael he's saying yeah, this is all this stuff ain't gonna fit and michael's like yeah yeah it will he's got an idea in his head of how it's all gonna go together um so anyway i don't think he intended to do that and when he did the version in 96 that we saw it was essentially an extended music video for too bad the same way the smooth criminal moonwalker segment is like a short film based around the videos of the song smooth criminal so that's really what it was it was a too bad extended music video or short film as michael preferred to call it and it did not have these songs in there uh, until basically the blood on the dance floor thing came along and the film was getting premiered at Cannes soon and they thought right well let's make it a box set soundtrack, you know, kind of thing. So I believe a lot of it had to do with marketing. I think it was just people saying, well, why don't we market this as the soundtrack to the ghost film and put it in a box set? But it's like, yeah, but it doesn't even have the song too bad on it. Or maybe we'll put the remix. And then they're like, well, maybe we should put other songs in there as well. So in my personal opinion, I feel like it was a marketing sandwiched it in sort of let's just chuck these songs in there so that we can market the soundtrack and the box set and i think i've spoken about this before to me the original version that we saw in 96 was a lot more pure in terms of the the soundtrack and and the music that was in it to summarize that in a nutshell essentially when the skeleton's dancing and when the mayor's dancing which is currently is it scary and the song ghosts that's not what it used to be. It used to be a tailored soundtrack where it looked like the skeleton was really dancing to this sort of syncopated, basically like a too bad breakdown instrumental riff on that song, but with all these extra little parts. And so as a result, it felt like the skeleton was really dancing and creating that rhythm. And there was it's like sounded like bones and little percussive things. And it suited it so much better. And then when the mayor's dancing, similarly, it was it was a similar thing. It was sort of dancing to these syncopated rhythmic sounds. And it kind of came across as the mayor's really dancing to this soundtrack that's been created. It's like the mayor is creating the soundtrack in a way it felt real. And what they've done in the, the, the final version, 
they've just literally dumped the songs over the top so it becomes more like a music video there's vocals of michael singing while the skeleton's dancing for is it scary there's vocals of michael singing ghosts while the mayor's dancing now if you look at from a from a pure story point of view it's like well the skeleton's not singing and the mayor's not singing so it doesn't feel like it's real you know diegetic sound or whatever it is it just feels like you know a needle drop we used to call it or they've just dumped a song over the top like a music video so personally i always prefer the original but i can kind of see why the value is there in having those songs and i think if it had been intended that way they probably could have done a bit better job of making the songs feel a bit more integrated rather than just dumping them over the top to an already finished because the edit and the cut didn't change they just dumped the songs over the top and ghost was in the credits always but as some people know the version of ghosts in the original credits i believe was a much better version of the song it probably wasn't a finished finished version but it had this really cool dangerous era sounding snare drum it was much more funkier it had this really cool synth bass going through it and then they just stripped all the, the bass out of it for the final version which i was always feel it's a bit dry didn't really like it as much so yeah the original soundtrack the original intention of what michael was trying to do i believe was what he wanted and then this album came along that is not really what he wanted to do at all and somehow that becomes the soundtrack for this film he's created and then the songs end up in it so you can kind of see how it was sort of more about that marketing and the, and the blood on the dance floor soundtrack slash box set as to why the film ended up being what it was and who knows maybe michael loved those songs and thought i really want them in there but it was sort of a bit of a roundabout way of getting it all to come together and it just feels a bit off to me every time I say it. I have a slightly different take on that. I think just looking at it from a filmmaking standpoint, I think that they wanted to keep everything in that long version and that even with doing breakdowns of too bad, it just became way too repetitive. And so the compromise, and I'm sure Sony liked it, was to put those other songs in because I mean, you can tell watching it that that like, especially like is this scary and ghost, they don't quite fit in all the ways that Paul just said. And I think it was just, look, if it's going to stay this long, it starts to feel boring because it is a very repetitive piece. It doesn't need to be that long. And I think changing up the music helped it feel less repetitive and also was good promotion for those songs. Yeah. I think, like, as I said, I wish they'd had, like, I guess this is a 93 film that got then done in 96 and then redone in 97. And the end result is sort of a bit of a hodgepodge. If they had said, let's create this in 96, 97, and we've got these songs and they just did it all intentionally. I wish there was a way to have those songs in there and just make them feel a bit more organic rather than because there are things in the dance in the choreography there's a part where the mayor points to one side and sideways moonwalks the opposite way like he's pushing himself along with his finger and in the version that we have now it's just the song goes playing and nothing happens but in the original there's like a little do -do 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 kind of sound design that sort of felt like he was doing it so i just wish that that you know i guess in a perfect world i wish they had sort of combined those ideas and incorporated the songs in a way that felt organic and, and like it was designed that way rather than just plonking them over the top, I guess. 
but it does spice it up. I agree, and I do enjoy hearing those songs in in the film. I just sort of miss some of the things that were in the early version, but you know. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously they thematically fit very well, like because they're the the themes of the songs that are horror based. So, you know, they feel totally at home in that piece. But yeah, I would love to see the original version with the original editing. I think that would be really great to see. The second criticism I have of it, really, I mean, and please understand, I, I love it. Like, I think it's really, really great. But the other slight criticism I have of, of it is the editing. So um, I've always been curious about how different the f- original edit was to the one that we got that eventually came out. But Paul, you're saying the one you saw was pretty much the same or the same length. It's just the sound that was different. It's like, yeah, putting sound aside, the actual edit and every single cut and everything you see is 99.9% identical. There's only one difference. And that's when the, the mayor ghoul is morphing and changing when he holds up the mirror to himself it's a different visual effect and it goes for a different, slightly different length. Maybe it's like, he's, it's a different visual effect. That's a little bit more cheesy, you know, the old like black or white thing that sort of came from Terminator two, where one thing morphs into another and used to see people using that technology where they take a photo of someone and it just morphs into another. You see, see it all the time on the internet, baby Michael morphing into adult Michael or something. The effect looked a bit more like that. Like it was just a bit too, not as sophisticated it just sort of morphed and then it didn't really match the final makeup that we cut back to so they redid that visual effect and i think the visual effect is much better and it matches better and it's a bit more sophisticated so that's the only visual difference well there's one minor minor difference which is not really a thing which is the version they just put up on on the youtube channel doesn't have the credit for the song is it scary which was tacked on the credits at the end so it's like the film was done and those songs went in there. And then when it came out on the box set, the credits finished, the making of's underneath the credits. And then this extra credit comes up and says, is it scary? And all the credits for the song. Uh, they've taken that off again for the, for the YouTube version, which means that song doesn't even get a credit. Is it scary? But other than <laughs> that, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Those are some interesting thoughts that you guys have. I know we had previously discussed like the film being a little bit autobiographical, like what the general public kind of thought about Michael during this time, like with him being the whole freaky freak boy. And I felt like too bad in particular was the one song in the film that kind of goes against that notion a little bit and shows that Michael wasn't really going to back down from a fight. Like it's really like fun and games. Like he's doing all this cool stuff. Monsters are climbing up the walls and it kind of migrates into like a circus act, almost like he's embracing that, these people think these things about him and he even like flips the script at the end like holding up the mirror to the mayor when he becomes ghoulish and i think as someone put it on twitter once it's kind of like it's one of those songs where it's like michael jackson is like i'm michael jackson and y'all ain't gonna beat my ass kind of like unbreakable on the invincible album (laughs) (laughs) he had always said he had rhinoceros skin but also with that it's like just because he did doesn't mean that it didn't hurt him sometimes, which would kind of bring us to songs like, is it scary? Where it's like, MJ is kind of being more self-aware. Like you think all these things about me, but that's what you choose to think about me. It's not necessarily what I'm trying to present to you. 
it reminds me a little bit of this song that Eminem has called The Way I Am, where he goes like, I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? Like people expect, I guess, Michael to be more age appropriate because it's like a societal norm when he'd explained that he didn't have a childhood and it was why he found joy in these childlike things and he wasn't going to change himself just because these people with dirty minds wanted to make the innocent things he was doing disgusting to fulfill their own preconceived notions. And then like with ghosts, I think I had said in my video, it could have been MJ showing like a bit of paranoia, but also maybe like asking the question of are all these things happening to me because are people out to destroy me are they jealous of the empire he's built the legacy he's created up until this point there's also like a lot of hidden meanings in a lot of michael's works and i feel like that's what separates ghosts from thriller because i don't think that michael in particular was at the point in his career where he could really make these deep layered pieces around that time period because his solo career was really just getting started around that time. I mean, sure, he had his albums while he was still a member of the Jacksons and off the wall, but with Thriller, like when Thriller took off, that's when he would start to experience these ghosts of jealousy, being called a freak and people destroying him. Well, Hannah, I think there's some really, really on point thoughts right there and some great analysis. You know, you know it, it just goes to show once you peel back the layers of Michael's work, how much like how many subtle references there are to, you know, historical or social issues. It's amazing stuff. You could spend your lifetime studying Michael's work and still find more. Um, another great thing about the film is the original classical score that that goes throughout it. And Nicholas Pike, who I think was the composer that worked on it with Michael, we haven't heard a whole lot out of him either in terms of interviews. Um, interestingly, he's about to speak shortly, I think, at... Uh, convention in London, the Michael Jackson convention. So it will be really interesting to hear, hear his story told there. Yeah, there are some absolute just standout moments. I think somebody mentioned earlier when all the ghosts are sort of like floating down from the ceiling, that that bit. I can't remember what that piece is actually called, but I love the fact that it got, you know, uh, uh, I love the fact that Michael sort of repurposed it in This Is It as well and, and shone a bit of a light on that that little piece. It's just so beautiful. But um, yeah. I think so, that that sort of music, that's some of the highlights for me of the actual film. I agree. I think that's part of what makes it a film. And Thriller did similar stuff, which I think it's just credited as spooky music, if I'm correct. Scary Thriller, music. Scary Elvis. music. That's what makes it a horror movie. With Ghost, that, that classical score that, that comes in at those key moments, it just, you feel like you're watching a theatrical film in those moments. And I mean, you always did with Michael's short films. They were, there were so much more than music videos, but those moments, especially in ghosts and thriller, they just make it a horror movie. And my dog Arwen fully agrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, did anybody else catch the little, uh, the, the BG song that's in there? <laughs> the BG the song? There's genuinely a BG song in there. Um, Okay, in so ghosts? in ghosts, I'm not kidding around. I'm just trying to remember the name of the song. Carter, are you there to help me out? Because I know you know the name of this song. But it's in the bit where all the ghosts are like walking up the walls and onto the ceiling. There's like this, you know, oh, repetitive. Is it you, like this, does it sound like you win again? 
That's it. It's you win again. I, I swear yeah. to God, you play play the ghosts, play that bit in ghosts, and then go play the start of you win again. Yeah, it's the I same thing. Yeah, and it's a really <laughs> thundering beat. Yeah. Oh, wow. I never put that together. So I'm wondering, like, you know, because Michael had a friendship with Barry Gibbs, so I'm wondering if this was kind of like a some kind of like little homage to him or something like that, or I don't know. Or it could just be Michael being Michael who likes to take little things and influences from everywhere and you can hear all these little things coming through and it sounds like this and it sounds like that, which is something he did a lot of. So he, he did. He was like the, loved it. He was like, oh, Quentin I love Tarantino. that beat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino of songwriters. Yeah, he's like, oh, I love that beat. I want to do something like that. That's cool. Let's use that. Yeah, yeah. the score for oh, uh, Jaws became Heal, Heal the World. <laughs> exactly. End of that, you're like, hang on a minute. On the credits, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole bunch of those. You could probably YouTube and find them all about all those ones that are derived from somewhere else or inspired by, let's say. Yeah. yeah. Good times. Okay, let's jump into cinematography and editing. Paul, obviously you are a professional film editor and this is something you do every day for your career. And I kind of wanted to talk about how this stacks up compared to some of Michael's other work because something that sort of stands apart for Ghosts, I think, is that there are a lot of quick cuts in this thing, like especially in the musical pieces, not so much when the dialogue's being delivered, but in the musical pieces, you often don't get more than a second or two looking at something before it cuts to something else, whether it's the audience or the other dancers. I noticed that when I was watching it last night, you see a lot of the dancers. And I mean, they look phenomenal. Their costumes are incredible. I love how each of them have their own different characters. I think when we spoke to Travis Payne, for the episode that Charlie Thompson and I interviewed him on, he talked about how they actually develop a story or a background story for each of those individual different ghosts or dancers before it happening. So, yeah, I just wanted to know, Paul, as an editor yourself, does that stand out to you, the amount of cuts there are? Do you think it's particularly well edited? Well, I wouldn't say it's terribly edited. At the time, I said I didn't have any problems with the editing when I first saw it and then as the years have passed as a professional I watch it now most of the main stuff feels fairly classic sort of true to the films of its time it's not until like you say until the dance sections that the editing becomes more noticeable and perhaps a bit more controversial or you know open for people's tastes or opinions I think the biggest difference with with ghosts particularly the dance sections all the dance sections and the song sections, et cetera, compared to, say, Thriller, which is, you know, it's more classic. You know, Thriller was pretty much, you know, let, let Michael dance and we'll just point the camera and, and let's just keep it classic and, and very straightforward. The difference with Ghosts is they're cutting away for reactions and enhancing it and they're featuring, as you say, all of the background dancers and characters. That's the biggest difference. They're really showcasing all the other people. So there's constant cuts like like Adam was talking about earlier and some of them feel a bit awkward and a bit off probably because we know that when they shot it, they weren't really reacting. So they've tried to pick which reactions to put where and sometimes the kids are going, oh, wow, and the parents are like, oh, my God, and nothing much is happening. You know, why are they so reacting to this? Like there's certain parts where Michael's doing something amazing and they're all blown away and the reactions look good and then there are other parts where it's so like the dancers are just walking around and they're still getting really excited by it. So this is one difference is there's a lot more reactions to kind of build the energy 
and build the, 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 the feelings or the emotion of the piece. So lots of cuts and reactions to the kids and the parents and also lots of cuts to the different characters that are dancing with Michael, the family, you know. So that's one big difference. In terms of the editing style and the pace, it's, it's that syncopated sort of rhythmic thing that Michael started to develop, particularly with, say, the 1995 MTV Awards Dangerous Performance which he had done earlier, a version of in 93 at the American Music Awards as well. And then later when you got to Rock My World and things like that, he, he started doing this idea of the <laughs> and sound effects and brushing and choreography, brushing jackets, tapping fingernails. So there's a lot of that in there. And that's where a lot of this quick paced editing comes along where they're sort of like doing all the different things and they're jumping up, down, banging on the floor and tapping and, and it's cut, 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 which, you know, I guess that goes with the rhythmic percussive nature of what the choreography is doing. And they were trying to do something cool and unique and fresh. And that was a new style kind of emerging at the time. So I guess the editing goes with it. But yeah, maybe I guess what you're saying is that it's a little bit too cutty and maybe it's distracting in some way or you don't think it's as pure perhaps is that what you're saying i i definitely get pulled out of the film with it because yeah. like i'm i'm focusing on how many how often they're changing camera angles but also like they obviously filmed it with like in multiple takes and unfortunately there's a terrible thing that happens where in one of the takes where michael performs a part of his shirt like i don't know it's kind yeah. of like a like a thing hanging down from the side of your shirt. I don't know what you'd actually call it, like a ruffle sort of thing. Yeah, the ruffle. And that for one of the takes, that's like caught by the wind or whatever yeah. across his waist going down diagonally. And then in the other take, it's not. It's sort of like blowing off behind him. Yeah, and so because I mean, they're constantly cutting between those two takes, it's like you're noticing, oh, the shirt's that way there. It's a different way there. There's also other times where like the wind machine is on and then there's times where it's not. So like, one second, the wind, his, his hair will be blown back away from his face when he's singing. And then literally the next cut, a second later, his hair is just down straight, not blowing anywhere. Yeah. So I've, it's like... I have so much to say about this. I, I, assume, <laughs> okay. you're, I assume you're familiar with, with, with Come Together at the end of Moonwalker, which is exactly <laughs> yeah. the same thing. Like he's, he tore his shirt open in the last take. And then they're like, well, that oh, great. Because now the first two takes they did, he's got this shirt, you know, the white shirt all fine but then in the end he went a bit nuts and tore it open so now when they're cutting back as his shirt's being torn and it's, and it's perfectly repaired and you know but it's it's a common thing i mean adam you can talk about this as well it's a common thing you know when you do multiple takes in film and particularly music videos where yes. it's not like a multi-cam scenario so it's never going to be continuity continuity is perfect but you may or may not know the golden rule we have as editors is we don't cut for continuity. We cut for emotion and story and story is our gateway to emotion. So we're cutting for the feeling and the emotion and the best performance and the best take and trying to present the best of everything in a way that will engage the audience and make them feel something and get into what we're trying to present. And so by far, they are going to choose the coolest stuff and the best stuff and the stuff that just feels right without worrying so much about, oh, hang on, but the shirt doesn't match or whatever. And if you've watched it a hundred times, you might pick up on that. But when I first saw it at the premiere and I don't remember thinking, hang on a minute, you know, you don't pick up on these things until you've watched it over and over and over. Yeah. I think when it's a, you know, a narrative story, you do everything you can for, for continuity. Obviously story emotion comes first. You can always find 
little continuity mistakes in anything. But with music videos, there is a certain suspension of disbelief where that just goes out the window and it doesn't matter. And we spoke about this four years ago, uh, and I think it was episode 110. Was that the one that we were on, Paul? Well, we were it was talking a, about Thriller it was a versus Ghost. One, yeah. yeah. But I think the reason why Thriller is so much more classic than this is because of how it was shot. Because Landis just he he leaned on wide shots way more. And there's a reason why all of us, even people like me who cannot dance, can do the thriller dance. Because we watched <laughs> them do it so many times. We know the dance. But with ghosts, there there's so many cool moments, but it wasn't a cohesive dance that a lot of people can do from start to finish. And it's because it's cutting all over the place. That was also very indicative of the style of MTV by that point. Everything was cutting, cutting, cutting. Now, in a in a normal like feature narrative, I'm a big fan of longer takes because as the audience, every time there's a cut, subliminally and subconsciously, you're being reminded that you're watching a movie or a video, whatever it is. You're not thinking about it, but you're it's triggering your brain. Cut, cut. I'm looking somewhere different, different angle. But when something can play out as a wonder, and I do this a lot, especially with like special effects, with violence and stuff. If I can play it out without showing the cut, you believe what you're looking at because you're just that much more into it. So I think that's the biggest difference for me and why Thriller will always be superior is because it, I don't know, man. It's like you can ask anyone and they can at least do a good chunk of the thriller dance. <laughs> and, 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 and that's just from seeing it a couple times, but with yeah. ghosts, I mean, I've seen it a ton of times. I, there's not a lot of moments in it that, that I could remember and verbatim just do. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting actually, because I was watching it uh, in preparation for this again, seeing it a million times, but I thought let's have a look specifically at say the editing this time. And I sort of found that I, I was surprised by how, cause I felt the same way you do Adam. And I was like remembering it as very cutty and lots of different close-ups. but the, the actual dance and choreography when Michael's on screen dancing is actually mostly comprised of, of two wide shots, like a straight on one and then one from sort of an angle to the right. And it cuts between these wide angles of the choreography quite a lot. And I was like, oh, I seem to remember it being more cutty. Most of the close-ups are of reaction shots of the, the parents and kids or of the other characters, the other dancers and, and, and would you call them ghouls? And occasionally there'll be some medium close-ups of Michael's feet and some upper body sort of medium shots. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say close-ups. But yeah, they do, whenever the dance is happening, try and do these wider shots but they've just intercut it with so many other little pieces of reactions and different things and like a finger tapping or a finger snapping and things like that, that the, the overall result feels a lot messier and less cohesive than obviously a classic like Thriller. I agree with that. It, it does feel very much like they're, they're not allowing it to be a classic sort of captured choreography because there's so many different elements, but because it's so complex I wonder if they just stayed on wide shots and didn't have reactions or whatever, whether it would actually feel as classic because the choreography, like you said, it's so complex. It's not as simple. Like Michael always used to talk about how 
you know, like when he when he did uh, when he did We Are the World or something. He wanted a song that the whole world could sing, that children could hum along to. It's so so easier. And you compare that to a similar song like What More Can I Give many years later, same kind of song he was trying to do, but it's just much more complex and it's not as easy to sing necessarily. And Michael's music became that way many, you know, through the albums, you know, the simplicity and purity of some of those earlier records compared to some of the amazing complexity on, on the History album and beyond is, is just very much where he was at at the time, I think. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. The editing certainly fits the style of music with this. I think if, if Thriller was super cutty, it wouldn't, it just would have felt awkward. But I also, again, I wasn't there, but I bet that there was a conversation when they were cutting together this 38 minute or 37 minute long version where even the editor was like, can I just make a suggestion? Like, what if we took four minutes out of this? And Michael was like, no, no, keep it all in. And that a lot of the editing was to, again, just keep it interesting, keep, keep it interesting so and keep it from feeling. Yeah. Yes. So what would yes. you take yeah. out if you were in charge of editing it? What would you take you? out? <laughs> well, that, um, that's so hard, though, because now I want if there if I found out there was a 30 second longer cut of this, I would want to see it. So bad. <laughs> like, absolutely. Because you just want all everything you can possibly see of Michael. I mean, every time some footage gets uploaded, that's just like from the side of the stage and it's, you know, 45 seconds of kind of nothing. You're like, Oh my God. <laughs> and I got to watch it 10 times. Cause I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to say, but I just think, I don't know. There's definitely a version of ghost that's half the length yeah. that would definitely better it, it clocks in at around i think it's 33 minutes and then the credits and the making of with the ghost song brings it up to about 39 almost 40 minutes um so i as i said earlier like it was intended to be a 10 15 minute piece originally like it was intended to be just basically an extended short film slash music video for the song too bad that's really what it was going to be or originally it was probably going to be for the family thing track that he was doing but it became for too bad in the newer version and then because michael put the kitchen sink in and and, and kept it so long that's where like adam's saying <laughs> it felt like oh look we probably can't just keep having this it gets a bit repetitive maybe throw in more cuts maybe throw in a song let's put these other songs in there to keep it interesting etc etc but from an editing point of view, I have no doubt Adam's 100% correct that the, the editor, you know, his name was Marcus Manson, he, he, he'd done some music stuff before, you know, he did Break and Electric Boogaloo, Breaking 2 and Lambada and all this sort of stuff. He obviously had an idea for music and performance pieces and things like that. So I believe that definitely, and as an editor myself, that it should be shorter and could be shorter, but I would love to have this extended director's cut as a fan. But if you were trying mm. to reach an audience and make it as close to, say, a classic like Thriller, which is pretty much the perfect length for what it is, the answer that I would give would be it's playing really well until Michael does Too Bad and all of that, great. There's a little bit of trimming you could do before he launches into, into Too Bad perhaps, but majority of the trimming is the section where once he's done the song, we then, yeah. and everyone's reacted and smiled and gone, wow, that's amazing. We spend another 10 minutes without Michael because he's now a skeleton or a ghoul. And, and even though we're trying to feature all those, those ghoul characters and they're all dancing around and slamming on the floor and they're walking up walls and all that, <laughs> it's all great stuff. 
But that's really from a narrative perspective where most filmmakers and storytellers would say, what is happening here story-wise? Is Are we really giving anyone anything new to the story? In the script, it would probably say Michael performs the song and then it would say, and then the dancers dance around and go up the walls and stuff. It, 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 it's nothing story. It would be one sentence, you know, but they do all these cool things and they do this and they do that. Now they're upside down and now they're, you know, taking their heads off or that kind of vibe, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, <laughs> so that's definitely the section that mm. is feels a little long and it's yeah. the kitchen sink version. It's the same argument that, you know, people would say something off the Dangerous album or History album should be four minutes for radio. And Michael's like, no, I want a two minute intro and I want like a three minute <laughs> outro for the song. And I, I need want to Chris Tucker. And I Come want on. people to be, yeah, I want people to be <laughs> nourished by this extended, you know, version. And that's what he's doing here. He's essentially saying, I've got all these cool ideas and I want to throw them all at you and I want to have it extended. But from a purist, perspective is in terms of editing and storytelling you'd probably say what develops in the story in that middle section that we haven't already kind of got the idea of already and could we shorten that down and still follow the story and and what is what has it given us that's that's that important to to what the story we're telling and then it sort of picks up again once once it gets into the mere stuff and the mirror and the whole thing so that'd be the main section that i would say is a bit too long perhaps and could maybe make it a little bit tighter and you know in the editing world we and filmmaking world we always talk about how taking certain things out just raises the quality of the whole thing if you take out your five weakest moments from a film Mm -hmm. for example the quality raises the storytelling the engagement can can be stronger so it's and and some people think the other way and they go no the more in it the more nourished the more backstory you know peter jackson would say you got to have everything in there and <laughs> you got to tell that story and the fans will love it but then who is your audience it gets into this whole question and you know is it for the fans is it for the general public are we trying to reach reach a, a worldwide audience and ghosts unlike thriller i don't think reached a worldwide audience and i think it put a lot of people off because of its extended indulgence its length and possibly some of the themes where thriller was a bit tighter and it was much more classic this is also though where you should take into consideration the fact that michael fully financed this himself (laughs) and it was very expensive and with no real plan in place on how he was going to get the money back i don't even think he ever really did and when you paid for all of these incredible effects and moments you're going to want to see them on the on the screen and that's a huge thing as you know adam in filmmaking is you know particularly if you've got studios or producers if they've spent money on stuff they don't want to take it out but directors and storytellers and editors usually want what's the best for the film and sometimes Mm. it's taking out the two million dollar helicopter shot that we spent three days (laughs) hiking up the mountain if it's not working for the film you should make those decisions based on what's best for the film and the story i find most directors though they're way too precious with what they shot like uh, and i'm notorious for just hacking away at my stuff like if a movie's over 90 minutes I yeah. already don't like it usually. <laughs> exactly. Like the first thing I do is look at the runtime, and when it's like a horror <laughs> yeah. movie and it's over two hours, I'm like, "Oh, come on!" Like, yeah. 
So it's exactly, yeah, exactly. I just this is watched... exactly what Charlie Carter thinks about our episodes. Ninety <laughs> minutes. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Cut it I off. Just, I, I just you watched know... Jordan Peele's Nope last night, and I was thinking, look, it's too long for me. I think there's some really interesting ideas, but I just wish it had been a bit more condensed, a little bit. But anyway, that's just a personal thing. Um, can I just jump in and, and ask Hannah something? Like Hannah, you're you're what we'd sort of say a relatively newer fan. Like you sort of weren't there at the time when this ghost came out, and you know feeling the original intent of, in in that time. I'm curious. Do you feel like it's too long? Do you feel like it's the right length? Do you feel like there's too much of anything, or does it just work for you? Um, I feel like it works for me. I feel like Ooh. it's just a normal sized film for me um but i mean the film came out in like 97 right or was that 96 96 97 yeah well it's like that's when i was born <laughs> so i mean <laughs> if you ask anyone that's maybe like that was born in maybe like 2005 they might disagree with me and say it's too long because a lot of like the younger generation they like things that are a bit shorter but i feel like it's a decent length and well i just like michael jackson and i liked getting to see him do something that he genuinely wanted to do because most of us know that he really wanted to pursue film and that was kind of like his plan after the this is it tour and everything so i just liked the fact that he actually got to kind of do that with ghosts and everything mm. that's cool that's good to hear because yeah it's i'm curious like i said everyone comes from a different perspective into how they think it should be. I do remember some fans even at the time saying, I like it, but I didn't really like it when Michael wasn't on screen. They're <laughs> like, there was too long away from Michael, bring Michael back on screen. So they thought some of those things were too long for that reason. Um, but yeah, so now that's really interesting to hear the different perspectives. I mean, another idea for like editing this thing is you know, maybe they could have cut out 42 of the 47 times Michael screams, ha, ah! the camera, because, <laughs> like, seriously, there's a lot of that. But anyway, um, no shade. I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about CGI. So, I mean, again, I watched it last night for the all the way through for the first time in a couple of years. And, you know, I think it stands up pretty well, especially the whole skeleton sequence. Like, I'm not looking at that like I do some other things from the 90s. And, and I'm not thinking, oh, this is so fake. This looks ridiculous. I think it actually holds up quite well. Maybe that's testament to, you know, Stan Winston and his whole career being around you know, special effects and what he brought to the table. What, what do you guys think about how, how the CGI holds up? This era of like the 90s is, I think the CG is one of the reasons why there are so many forgettable movies from this era. And it wasn't quite there yet. And I think that a lot of filmmakers rushed to that fad. And nowadays you see much more of a combination between practical and CG and the CG has gotten so much better and they just know how to integrate the two and use both to their best strengths. As much as I do think a lot of the CG and ghost does hold up and does fit the tone of the piece because it's okay to be slightly cartoony at times. My problem with the, the skeleton is when the close-up of like the head of the skeleton when it first comes forward looks like 
like Windows 95, uh, <laughs> like you almost expect to hear dial up like during that part. But, and then my other issue is he takes his skin off and a skeleton dances around and nobody runs. But then when Michael is like the super ghoul, the mayor is terrified. Everybody's like so scared, but the, right. the dancing skeleton, it's like, that's yeah, you see that every day. Um, <laughs> but, but overall though, I do think, you know, the use of, of how they would motion capture the performance and to see a skeleton dance, like only Michael Jackson can, like those are still just gorgeous moments in this that make it so much fun. And, Overall, though, I think a lot of the camera trickery, the ghost dancing on the ceiling, or, you know, there's that one amazing shot where the camera is pointed down and there's ghosts marching up the sides of the walls, but also moving on the floor below in the regular way. Those composite shots and stuff, they still hold up. They're still really cool. And this also has the benefit of them being ghosts. So they can be a little translucent or not quite look like they're in the shot and it it still works. So yeah, I, I don't I don't hate the CGI. It doesn't like take me out of it completely. Um, but it is very indicative of the time for sure. Exactly. I was going to say the same thing. It's, it's very much of its time and everybody's different. I'm somebody who watches a lot of classic stuff from the eighties and nineties and I don't sort of look at them and go, Oh, this doesn't hold up. I just look at it as a, as something of its time. And I enjoy actually being in that space. Sometimes when people update things from the eighties or nineties and put in new effects, it actually bothers me because I want to sort of, uh, yeah, I want to be in the yeah. pure <laughs> feeling of what it was like. And I like to have something, watch it and go, wow, what impact would this have had? Imagine the audience seeing this at the time, you know, you want to sort of feel what it was like and you can't really do that if it's all been changed and updated and so on and so forth for me personally though i think coming back to what jamie was saying michael wanted the best so at this time he got the best you know he had the stan winston and the whole stan winston studio doing the best visual effects that they could do so it does probably stand up as one of the better examples of movies of that era because for, for its time these were the best people doing it and I think a lot of the, the effects for what they did at the time stood up really well. When I was sitting there at the premiere watching it for the first time in 1996, we were amazed by the tearing off of the skin and the skeleton dancing because we weren't used to seeing that kind of thing. We were amazed at, you know, even the, the, the makeup and prosthetics of the, of the mayor in the, in, you know, Michael in, the, in the, the fat suit dancing. We thought, wow, that's so cool. And, and a lot of the effects stood up really well. One thing I do think is probably worth pointing out, this was sort of created in 96. And like I said, there was one visual effect that wasn't quite up to scratch that they enhanced and changed for 97. But the early visual effects, and when I say early, I mean in the early part of this film, were exactly the same as the 93 version. I don't know if anyone mm. scrutinized it as close as I have, but the whole pulling out the cheeks, pulling the, the mouth down with the tongue and ripping off you know, the, the mask or the head to, to reveal the skeleton and then smashing it and the pieces going in his hair. 100% from 1993. It's the exact same footage and VFX they've taken. So it's not even the latest effects at that point. This was 1993 effects that they're releasing in 96 and then 97. So 
what's that, three, four, five, six, seven. So it's four years old, some of these VFX by the time they came out. And the smashing of him into the ground, the wide shot is identical to the 93. The close-up they redid of his face falling apart. So even some of the visual effects were created as far back as, you know, in the 93 version. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't even necessarily the cutting edge, but they must have thought at the time, well, they're cool and we put all that time and money and effort and we're so impressed with them. They didn't feel the need to try and do better than what, what was there. So it's a mixed bag of VFX. And something I love, as Adam talked about earlier, is the practical mix with, with, with uh, the CG. This one, as Adam said, probably relies too much on CG, but there's still the, all the practical makeup and all the practical effects, particularly with Michael playing the different characters, which I thought they did a really, really great job of. And this is something we haven't really touched on yet, but I did want to ask you guys, like, is it the definitive case that some of the footage in this is from the 93 shoot? Because there's, I think the moment where Michael, I can't remember the exact moment, but you can tell when it's like when his hair is like super duper curly, that looks like the 93 time. And yeah. then footage where it's not as curly as like when it was shot a little bit later. Almost everything in the opening is from the original. All of the all of them walking up in the wide shots, the sign, the someplace else, and the town, the valley, or whatever it's called. All of those shots are 100% taken from the '93 version. You can even see, I call him Bob Kelso, uh, in, at playing the mayor in the wide shots. And when they Bob come, Kelso. Yeah. Um, what's the actor's name? I can't remember his real name. I don't know. He'll always be Bob Kelso, though. Exactly. It doesn't matter. He, Ken, Ken Jenkins, I think his name is. You can see him in the wide shots as the, the group approach in the black and white. And if you look really closely, it's a different group of people. And when they enter the house, uh, you can see Bob Kelso in, in a couple of the wider shots and the aerial shots. A lot of those aerial shots of them entering, doors opening, things like that, if you scrutinize it, you'll find that they're exactly 100% the same shots. Because if you're a filmmaker, why would you redo those shots? You know, there's no no need. It's I mean, it's similar to, you know, Back to the Future, which there's a few little moments of Eric Stoltz in wider shots and things that they'd already shot before they recast with Michael J. Fox. And they're not going to have to reshoot that because why would you? And if you look really closely, you can go, hang on a second. But yeah, if you if you're a Bob Kelso fan from Scrubs, you can you can have a look you can have a look <laughs> at some of the wider shots. The first three minutes of Ghosts is almost purely the '93 version footage, except for the obvious stuff of the new group approaching with Michael as the mayor. But all the doors and going in, a lot of it is just ripped from the original version. And as I said, some of those VFX in the early part where he turns into the skeleton, pulls his face and cheeks out and his tongue and all that. That's all 100% from the original, as well as when he first smashes himself into the ground. They already had it, so they had to replicate it. They kept the set the same. They made it look all similar. So that's why, in my mind, it's almost like the film has a 93 version. It does feel like an Adams Family era type thing rather than a mid-90s film because it started off with a certain production design and look, and they'd already shot stuff, and they just kept the look and the feel of it and continued it through. So that's why it sort of has this era-spanning mixed bag feel where it started in 93 and then ended up becoming widespread in 97. So the estate obviously have re-released Ghosts. They do a thing where they, they, I think it was a year or two ago, they put it up for the first time on the official Michael Jackson YouTube channel as a high-definition remastered version, and they seem to take it down after a period of time after Halloween and then re-upload it or they 
I don't know, make maybe they just turn it private or whatever after Halloween's finished. Uh, but it's recently gone live again on the Michael Jackson YouTube channel. And I'm curious, especially considering we recently got 4K versions of Thriller and Beat It, which we've talked about on the MJ cast before, and I am a huge fan of what they did there in terms of presenting those particular versions. How do we think the Ghosts remaster visually stacks up as compared to some of the other recent 4K remasters that they've put out? I believe from my end, I mean, I guess I've sort of worked in this field and the, the technical behind the scenes. I look at that and I say, okay, they've released the, the highest quality master they have and sort of put it in what they'd call HD, but it, I don't think it's a remaster. So I don't think they've gone back to the original negative and done a rescan at 8K or 4K or whatever and represented it again. Well, all the visual effects make it problematic. Like it's very hard to remaster something with so many visual effects without taking the time to either process them or recreate them or do whatever they've got to do to, to bring them out. So, yeah, I, I think this is the definitely the best quality we've ever had of Ghost because, as most people know, it was either on TV or on VHS and in certain Asian countries it was VCD and Laserdisc and that was the highest quality we had. So this is definitely the highest we've ever seen it. I'll also point out it's never going to look as sharp and clear as something like Thriller or Beat It Remastered in 4K because of its time, because of the cameras, the lenses of the the early to mid 90s had a certain look. They have what I like to call a sort of a more of a soapy look. And I'm a huge fan of Terminator 2. And the original version of that was had that 90s sort of soapy look to it, where it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like a softer pastel kind of look. But when Cameron remastered that and put it in 3D in, what was it, 2017, he went back to the original negative. And so the new version looks really different and sharp and clear and he's recolored it and it's quite fantastic. That's probably what they would need to do with Ghosts in order for it to kind of compare to the kind of quality that we're talking about with some of these other 4K versions. It's not really currently, like it's bordering on HD you know, but it's barely HD. It's sort of just sharp and clear, but it's also got that 90s smooth soapy look to it, which again is a product of the time when it was shot and the era that it was created in and the technology they were using for shooting and lenses and coloring and all of that mastering everything. So it's it's pretty decent, but it could be a lot better. There's also a lot of discussion about the, the aspect ratio being that it's in four by three, this is one of those ones where it was shot as a video project in a lot of ways. So it was always four by three. It was never, even when it was presented in the cinema, it was always shown in four by three. If you look at all the behind the scenes and you look at all the cameras and they've all got their sort of uh, framing guidelines, it's all four by three. Every time they're working on visual effects, if you look at the making of it, I've never ever seen it anything but four by three unless someone's cropped the top and bottom which they often do. And if they were going to do that to, to present it in widescreen, they'd probably have to go through every single shot and raise them up or down to just adjust them to make sure they're getting the best fit for the crop. Otherwise, you might have certain things cut off top or bottom. We talked about this ages ago with Thriller. You know, if something's really tight at four by three frame, top or bottom, there's nowhere to go if you're going to, if you're going to repurpose it into, you know, a 185 or a 169 you're going to lose something so looking at ghosts the other night i was like yeah they could probably crop this but some of it's a little tight here and there 
so anyway, who knows what the future holds with it, but I believe that the best they could do with it would be to go back to the original negative and remaster it from scratch and rebuild everything and present it in the highest quality they possibly can and either present it in a widescreen version or give us both four by three and widescreen and if people want to zoom in and crop it themselves, they can. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think you, you nailed it. Cool. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> Thick. Yeah, I think it looks great. I think it looks fantastic in terms of its framing. This is something that a lot of streaming services, I guess, these days or, or production companies kind of feel tempted to do is to zoom in on something that was shot, you know, full frame or four by three and make it look uh, modern and widescreen like they did that with Seinfeld. Yeah, I think they did they it did. with The Simpsons maybe, but I hate it when they do that because everything looks like the, the resolution is not as good because they've zoomed in on it. I'd much rather see what it was originally shot at in the highest, crispest possible yeah. resolution. Most, most, and, and we do get used to it. Like I know at first it's a little jarring when something is four by three, when you're used to seeing, you know, your, the whole frame of your widescreen TV used, Yeah. but you get used to it after a few seconds. So yeah. it's. And I was yeah. going to say most people, have on a function on their TV where they can take any four by three image and zoom in themselves to fill the screen without stretching or squashing. And I do that all the time on certain things where they re-release something in like a remaster. And it's like, you know, they did it with, I don't know, say Twin Peaks, for example, they, they did like a full HD remaster and put it out on a Blu-ray and it looks fantastic, but it's its original four by three. And then sometimes I'm like, hey, let me zoom in and fill the screen and let's just see if the quality and if the quality holds up sometimes you go oh, i feel like watching it in this kind of more cinematic way sometimes you want the purity of the original but you have the choice to do that on on your tv if you're watching it on a tv screen so i often prefer when they remaster stuff if they're not going if they're just going to crop it i would rather they didn't i'd rather they just gave us hd or whatever 4k 4 by 3 and then we can do what we want with it unless as I said, they're going to do a proper shot by shot reframe and actually rebuild it so that it fits and create a proper version that suits that aspect ratio. This is one of the biggest nightmares as a modern filmmaker with everybody getting these widescreen TVs now. First of all, everybody thinks they need 4K for everything now, even though some people only have like a 65 inch TV or whatever. Like the, you can barely barely tell the difference between a 2k blu-ray and a 4k mm -hmm. remaster unless you have a really really big big nice tv you're not really going to even see the difference but most people and this is going out to my parents more than anybody they get, <laughs> buy these tvs and for some reason they ship them with the motion smoothing function yeah. oh i turn it off when i go to family members houses I oh my god me too it drives me nuts and <laughs> and but as a filmmaker there this was a, many years ago now it's like 2013 whenever hatchet 3 came out 2013 there was this site that reviewed the movie and shit all over it because they're like, why did they shoot this like The Hobbit? Like it all looks like uh, like a BBC nature special. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and then I looked in all of their reviews going back like three months, they had that comment about. And finally they started reading the comments where people were like, guys, shut off the motion smoothing on your stupid TV. Yeah. And yeah. I, but they attacked all these different filmmakers for being terrible filmmakers when they just didn't know how to use their television. So it's always hard with this stuff. Yeah. 
It's the same as everybody watching for the longest time, and people still do, they watch 4 by 3 stuff squashed. So it's filling the oh, screen, yes. but it's just squashed. Now, as a weird OCD perfectionist kind of human being, I can't handle that. I'm like, whoa, even documentaries when they show stock footage, archive footage, and they just squash it. I'm like, come on, you got you got to either zoom in or preserve the 4 by 3 But people were watching stuff for years and years. You go around to someone's house and they're just watching something completely <laughs> squashed and distorted. And I'm just going, I would not be happy if I was one of these actors looking all squashed. <laughs> oh, it's awful. Yeah. And and then, you know, a lot of people just watch things on their phones or their tablets and, and then they think that they saw it when you spend all this time and money making the perfect 5.1 surround sound exactly and these you know gorgeous shots that you colored and framed just right and then yeah. somebody watches it on their phone and it's probably so, a good point to make is like you're talking about 4k or beyond it's really uh, like the way people view it is very rarely 4k and even if they are you barely notice the difference what what the real importance of that is is the original source material if they scan something in 8k they got the absolute best so then depends on how you watch it you can watch it on your phone or wherever whatever but as long as they scanned it in the highest quality of 4k they'll bring out all sorts of great stuff but once it gets to you you probably won't notice the difference you'll just appreciate that it's really fantastic quality but you don't necessarily always need to view it in 4k or 8k or whatever no it's more about the, and the mastering and getting the best quality from the source material and if you ever need to make the case for why not everything needs that treatment, just watch Flash Gordon in HD. <laughs> you can see all the, yeah, the strings and the effects. It's horrifying, <laughs> horrifying. And certain makeups and stuff, they weren't made yeah, to, to be seen too. like that. Yeah, so it's it's and hit Superman or miss. And Superman 2 and 3, you can see him landing on strings and wires. It's pretty Yes. <laughs> but then you get something like Jurassic Park that completely holds up, and that's because yeah. most of it was practical. There's only like seven shots that were like total CG in that whole movie, but everyone thinks it was CG, but that was Stan Winston just dropping the mic on makeup effects with that movie. Well, and many other people who contributed, I should say, but still. So just another quick side tangent then, because I, I really want to ask you about this, Adam, as a film director, but so some of your older films, let's say, for example, Frozen, which is, you know, my favorite of your films. And, you know, I have this thing for like, I have like a, a weird fetish for films that are set in like a confined location. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> So that's actually Me how too. I discovered you it, ever, way before, you know, you contacted us about the MJ cast and all of that. I'd, I'd watched that movie because I purposely seek out films that are like intensely set in confined locations. Um, there's a great one called Buried where a dude's in a coffin for the whole thing. Okay. So when Buried, okay. So Frozen premiered at Sundance and I'm like, all right, I have a skiing thriller that's premiering at Park City, Utah, a skiing town. It's three people stuck in a chair. Like I've taken the one location thriller to a new level. Like I've got this. And then when I got there, they're like, oh, we're going to interview you with this guy who also has a movie oh, here. No. And I'm like, <laughs> really? what's, I go, what's your movie about? And he goes, oh, mine's Ryan Reynolds stuck in a box. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> like, so well, he well, won it. Better, so. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But he had Ryan Reynolds and uh, and his was even more confined than mine. So <laughs> Yeah, but you've got wolves. So whatever. Exactly. Now, exactly. what I want to. <laughs> so what I want to know is like when like you that film came out in 2010, right? So 13 years ago. 
So what happens when it's time for it to come out again as like a remastered or version or whatever? Does like the studio, who approaches you about that and what kind of a say do you have in the remastering process? How does that all work? This is a really good question. Um, it's completely up to the distributor who holds the home video rights at that point, if they want to do that or not. And as most people know, physical media is a dying thing. So a lot of times it, it, it just depends and it depends how easy it's going to be to access those original elements. Like one thing uh, I'm probably not supposed to say, but like Hatchet, Spiral, um, Frozen, those were shot on 35 millimeter film and the negatives, the original negatives were all thrown out. So uh, they just were mismanaged by producers and somebody has to pay to store that stuff at this place called Iron Mountain. There's also other places as well, but where it's, it's remains refrigerated and protected. And they did not do that with the original negatives. Now they do still have the original masters and the inner positive and like the original prints. So they, yes, they can still do that, but it, is expensive and uh my second film spiral is getting a re-release very soon and they did do a i'm gonna call it like an up res i guess i haven't personally seen it but it would have cost money to let my dp and i go into a coloring suite and supervise that and they just don't want to spend money so it all it's always different but I'm sure Frozen is coming, given the popularity of that movie. It's probably, I'm going to guess, the 15th anniversary is when they're going to do that. So another year or two, that should be coming in a, in a new release. Well, I'm ready. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's jump back into Ghosts and, and, and let's talk a little bit about some of the other things around around the film. So in particular, we want to get into the choreography and the dancing and who else was involved in putting all this together. Yeah, we haven't really touched on the cast very much. So you've got a couple of townspeople like famously Most Def, who ended up becoming a, a really famous actor and rapper in his own right, is one of the people there in his early career. But you've also got this other personality that's in the Michael Jackson world called Shayna Mangatal, who um, is uh, one of the characters. Okay, I have a question about her. She was one of the standouts for me when I first saw this because I was, I guess I was like 20 years old when this came out. And there's not a lot of like younger actresses in the cast. And I just thought I, I, my eye always went to her. I'm like, God, she's beautiful. God, she's beautiful. And obviously in the years prior, she put out that book and stuff. I guess I must have missed the memo or something. But anytime she seems to come up in the fan community, people roll their eyes or whatever. And I've noticed that for all of us who defend Michael as being a heterosexual man, any woman who ever says she had anything to do with him, everybody goes, liar, every time. <laughs> and it's like, so did, did I miss something with it? Does anyone know what the story is there? Because I don't. Yeah, allow me to spill the tea. <laughs> okay. Please, <laughs> so it's not just the book per se. 
the whole book in and of itself, it seems like it's just a one-sided relationship and that Michael wasn't really feeling her like that. I mean, Michael literally married Lisa Marie Presley and Debbie Rowe in the time that he knew her. So it's like he clearly wasn't that into her. And then the climax of the book, which is like insert me going but is like you know <laughs> he <laughs> you know he i guess took her virginity which that in and of itself i guess it's not totally unbelievable you know michael was a sexual being this this that and the third it's just the whole thing it seems like it's just a one-sided story and that's why the book is like it just doesn't seem credible that and also shauna has come out and said like things that you know, MJ looked disfigured like during the early 2000s and stuff. And if this is someone that you said you are in love with and you liked and thought was hot and this, this, that, and the third, why are you saying he looks disfigured? She's also said things like, oh, the train station was built in 93 and put that narrative out there. She has just like, yeah, she said things like that. She I remember back when Lisa Marie passed away earlier this year, she made a post on Instagram and was basically trying to make like her death about herself because it's like she was hopelessly in love with Michael during this time and was annoyed that Michael kind of chose Lisa over her. So it's like that's why a lot of fans are kind of annoyed with Shauna. It's okay. like she she just made everything about her and it's like it also doesn't help that Joe Jackson was the only one who kind of was supporting her book, you know, because nobody else would touch her book with the 10 foot pole, to be honest with you. Okay. Got it. That's very helpful. Cause there's other books that have come out. I will read anything written about Michael. I just love anyone who loves Michael. And, but there was one, I think you guys had her on your podcast and I loved her book and everything, but she, if in the wrong context, she could come off like a stalker because she basically moved oh, to LA. Yes. To like yes. live outside of his house. And <laughs> and the thing is, as like a super fan, I'm like, I get it. Like I don't yeah, I don't think poorly of this person at all. I could see why other people would be like, oh come on. Like as somebody who's in this industry and who has met so many of my heroes and become friends with them and and I know that there's people who think, oh, that can't be true, or that's got to be exaggerated, and it's not, but you just, you never know. So that definitely helps me understand why I see eye rolls and stuff about that. I just never knew. So, But she was one of the standouts for me when I first watched it. And again, it's only because that was the only person in that cast that was close to my age uh, who was, you know, an attractive person woman and that's what i'm into so so i do remember noticing her whenever she was on camera and wondering who is that who knows maybe we'll have her on the the mj cast one day to get you know her version of events down we'll we'll see i also want to sort of talk about some of the other members that were in the cast especially the dancers who just i think look phenomenal and look fantastic i think i don't know who it was but whoever was in charge of makeup and costumes for ghosts i think just took it to a whole new level I think they look amazing how individual they are, especially compared to like, you know, and this is probably where we can compare back to Thriller and go, you know, which one's better in terms of certain aspects. I think Ghost has got to take the cake with, um, you know, design of, uh, you know, makeup and costuming. It's incredible. As good as Thriller is, of course, but the dancing and the choreography is really made up of a who's who of people that had worked with Michael in the past. So you've got Lavelle Smith Jr., Travis Payne, 
choreographing along with Barry Laver with Michael. And I, Barry is somebody I absolutely will never rest until I get to speak to one day because when you watch Barry Lather stuff on YouTube, it shines through so obviously in Ghosts. Like his his inspiration is right there in so many of the uh, dance moves that Michael and his team are pulling off in Ghosts. And I'm really interested in also in the whole story around he him. I don't even think he was physically there with Travis and Lavelle helping to choreograph. I think it was all done separately via video conference with Michael because Barry was so busy. There's some crazy story around that that I've got to get on record one day. The team that surrounds Ghosts in terms of its choreography are people that ended up going on to work with Michael for years and, and had worked with him for years prior, whether it be on the screen video or whatever. Yuko Samita, Rich and Tone Talawega, Stacey Walker. A lot of these people were on tour with Michael or in his other films. I think when I interviewed Travis Payne, he might have also told me, this is sort of a faint memory in my distant past, but I think he might have also told me that Jeffrey Daniel, who worked with Michael in the late 80s and one of the innovators and originators of popping and locking and that style of dancing is one of the ghouls in it. I'm not sure because I couldn't actually see him credited, so I don't know if that's definitely the case. But I want to hand over to Hannah to give your thoughts on you know, the choreography, the dancing, and and your thoughts as a younger fan watching this as compared to some of Michael's other work as well. Well, I think that I'm going to have to use like a little bit of modern slang and say Michael definitely ate, as the kids would say, with some of the choreography in Ghosts. I think definitely mainly with like Too Bad. I remember seeing this video on Elon's app, previously known as Twitter, um, <laughs> or the uh, Black Letter app, there was this video where someone took Too Bad and they just pasted like a random song on top of it. And I guess like the Too Bad choreography could go with like any song. Like that's how innovative and like amazing it really was to me. And then also, I know that ghosts was in the michael jackson experience but i'm just like we're, i don't remember him doing any of those moves in the actual film and whenever i tried to do those dance moves in the game i failed miserably but <laughs> i really loved the choreography and i also i think i had made a tweet if it's even a tweet on elon's app that he also ate in the fat suit I'm like to do all of that in the fat suit as well, his signature moves. Like he that did. was just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap everything up now by just a final uh, conversation, just about how we think that ghost stacks up, I guess, compared to thriller, because, you know, thriller is the one that has gone down as not only Michael's most famous short film, but probably the most famous short film ever put together by any musical artist. Uh, it was so inspirational for so many other films that came after it. I mean, it even got the honor of being inducted into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, making it the first music video to have ever received that honor, which is just an incredible thing. And and it's, I guess, sort of inevitable, really, that any of Michael's subsequent short films would be compared to Thriller, much in the same way as other albums that he did always gets compared back to Thriller. But I guess with Ghost, it's a bit different because, you know, there's so much similar thematic material they're both sort of horror themed both kind of fun as well at the same time as being horror there's even like little throwbacks in ghosts 2 thriller that i really love like there's a moment where like one after the other all of the 
ghouls quickly turn their heads and look straight on at the camera, <laughs> much in the same way that they did during Thor. Yeah. I don't know if that was an intentional throwback, but it definitely, I, I like to think it is in my head canon. But I'd love to hear from you guys how you feel Ghosts in the end compares to Thriller. Did Michael match and top what he achieved with Thriller? And if not, why? So Paul and I discussed this at length uh, in episode 110 in preparation for this one and only looking at ghosts and studying ghosts and not comparing it to thriller. I really appreciated ghosts way more than I think I ever have. I think Michael did top thriller in terms of spectacle and doing everything he could to bring us something new in that vein. That's even bigger and bolder than ever before. But in the annals of time, Thriller is just untouchable because there was nothing else like that in the music world at that point. And it is just so iconic. And like along the lines of what I was saying earlier, just about the way it was shot and edited, that dance is so iconic that even people who can't dance can do the Thriller dance. And Ghost just wasn't as widely seen, at least here in America, for various reasons. And I don't think the estate is doing enough to make ghosts part of pop culture. I appreciate that around Halloween time, they put it out on YouTube and HD and stuff, but don't take it away. I know I'm echoing the rest of the MJ community here, but like, give us a Blu-ray of all the short films already. Like, just give us stuff. Take our money, please. Like, we, <laughs> we just want to keep buying stuff and make some decent t-shirts for fuck's sake. Every, like every time I go on that site, I'm appalled by how terrible the, the t-shirt designs are and stuff like, and you know, I feel bad buying stuff other places, but I, what are we, what are you supposed to do as a fan? And, and I don't get it. I it's like, it's like they hate money. I, I don't, I just don't get it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> rant over <laughs> what you didn't enjoy the visions box set uh. <laughs> <laughs> that thing has a sticker on the front that says remastered and it looks worse it looks worse i bought before it yeah i have vhs's that look better than that like uh, uh. <laughs> oh yikes there's, there's no doubt in most people's minds that thriller is the classic and it's, you just can't top that. If I was going to watch one of the two, if I could only choose one to take to a desert island, you know, it'd be Thriller. And mm -hmm. particularly seeing it recently in in full, you know, remastered quality and even in 3D, just to see it as clearly, it's it's just pure perfection and it's of its time and it's of a time that I love, you know. I was growing up in the 80s, so to me it's just like, it's just a time that I love. Having said that, I had all these personal experiences around the time of ghosts literally with Michael Jackson in the same room watching this film and such fond memories there. So I don't know, I'd probably say that like everything, it's really subjective. It just depends on the individual. Like, do you love thriller Michael? Do you love history Michael? You know, he, he reinvents himself. He's a different kind of artist. He has a different style, a different look, a different appearance, a different kind of level of, of what he's trying to present and where he's going with his music, his art, his performance, choreography. So I really think it's subjective. If you just love early 80s thriller, Michael, then that's going to always be your jam. Ghosts, I think, for the most 
common population probably doesn't stack up as well but there may be people who that's their era and that's when they were growing up discovering Michael and that's really what brought them to Michael and they fell in love with that version of Michael. So it's purely a subjective thing in my opinion. It just depends on what you're into and what your preferences are and what you like and what you don't. I love them both, but I sort of would say thrillers, classic, you can't really top that. Well, I agree. I think it is subjective because it's like, what are we basing it on? Are we basing it on it being iconic? Are we basing it on the cinematography? Are we basing it on the choreography? I have to pick Thriller just because it is iconic and, you know, it's Thriller. I just feel like I can't not pick Thriller, but I do love Ghosts and honestly, if we're just going by like the songs, I... I would pick Ghosts over Thriller, but only because I feel like Thriller is just overplayed and I don't play Thriller outside of October, honestly. Mm. So Thriller has one more week in my rotation and then it will <laughs> go back to being skipped. <laughs> Fun. You got to go right to Just Good Friends, right? You gotta... uh. <laughs> oh, no. is like, hell yeah. Repeat. <laughs> Uh, man, I really love those thoughts. I mean, yeah, especially when you're looking at, you know, thriller is just fun. It's just, it's just popcorn entertainment, amazing fun. Ghosts, although it has that in it, is so much more introspective and deep. And and I feel like if you really want to learn about the challenges that Michael had to face broadly in terms of his relationship with society and people that accused him of certain things, Ghosts is is an incredible autobiographical piece to really delve into. So, you know what? I think we've really uh, got to the bottom of that in this chat. So thank you so much for all of you guys uh, for participating. I do want to also ask about the future of ghosts quickly. So, I mean, Adam, you just touched on, you know, what could happen in the future in terms of remastered Blu-ray re-release type stuff. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love watching the making of ghosts as well. Oh yeah. I love that footage of him in the motion capture suit dancing as the skeleton. My God, his moves are so sharp in in that particular uh, sequence all of the makeup stuff that's going on and and i love him on the floor with these dancers just kind of like sketching out exactly what they want the songs to become just incredible stuff and i think that's the key to you know the the estate wanting to release stuff in the future if they really want to make bank on this product we've already got a high definition version on youtube to watch for free even though and i've got to say it i don't know if you guys have like the premium youtube i don't so i get all the ads but ghosts is like stacked with ads oh like, no the it, worst moments oh, too. it is insane they have to fix that anyway so yeah if if, so if it comes out in the future again if it is on physical media or whatever i think they really need to try to include as much making of footage as they can and they could even recut that into like a whole new documentary yeah we will get it at some point it's just it's a shame it has taken so long but at, at some point when certain things change with the powers that be we will get what we want i i know it there's just no there's too much money to be made for somebody to not do it it's just a shame that it's taking so long and i'm hoping I have so much stock riding on this biopic and I should know better at this point than to ever get my hopes <laughs> up, but we've learned our lesson 10 times over. I know, <laughs> I know, but, uh, 
and I'll be quick about this, I swear, but with the average person in society, whatever these biopics are, as flawed as they might be or whatever, that becomes the narrative. And knowing who is involved with this, I feel like we are finally going to get some truth out there and that within a few years, that will become the narrative. And obviously we have the two jackasses, Wade and Jimmy, with their bullshit uh, civil case coming up, which could be problematic. But I do think the biopic is going to change things. And then I think there's going to be this huge demand for more stuff. There's going to be box sets. There's going to be uh, whatever. I, I, obviously, I don't, it's not like I know something other people don't know or anything. <laughs> but I just, I really, really hope. And then really quickly, I just want to say Halloween is my Christmas. It's everything to me. And because of being on strike for the last six months and then two years of COVID before that, I had to stack this month with convention appearances pretty much every weekend. And I was so bummed out that I wasn't going to have Halloween this year. There's no thriller night because they were going to be shooting the biopic there. And then in this last week, I just did an autograph signing at this thing called Monster Palooza in Burbank and Ola Ray was in the room next to me where there was a thriller exhibit. So it felt like I got a little bit of thriller night in a weird way. But then I had lunch with Taj yesterday and now getting to be on here with you guys, it feels like Halloween was saved. So uh, thank you for having me. And I'm always so appreciative to be part of this world and part of this community that I love so much. And it just, it, it means a lot to be, on here with you all so thank you oh thank you adam we love that's you that's awesome i i feel exactly the same adam it's great to always to talk with you and to all you guys it's like this is halloween's a big season for me as well so to be able to sort of get in a room with you guys virtually and sort of talk about all this stuff is amazing and as we wind up i guess my final thoughts would be you know in terms of the legacy of ghosts i think one interesting point to make which we haven't really touched on yet is that Thriller is known so well. It's Thriller. What is it? It's the music video slash short film for Thriller. What is Ghosts? Ghosts is basically the short film for Too Bad, but it's not called Too Bad, and Too Bad wasn't even released as a single. So it's it that adds, I believe, to the reason why it's sort of floating around. It's not as it's never going to be as long lasting. It's even got a generic name that there's so many things called ghost or ghosts. So I never, I just don't think that it's ever going to be the kind of thing that people go, oh yeah, ghost. Like what is that again? If Too Bad was released as a single, and that was the extended music video, and people love the song and they remember the performance and the short version of that was played and maybe we got to know the choreography better, there's always a chance that maybe people would identify and, and, and it would do better and it would be well known because people go, oh, yeah, the too bad thing, that was awesome. But it's not. It's this generic 40-minute thing called Ghosts with too bad in it and is it scary and the song called Ghosts that he's not singing and it's also in the credits. It's a bit of a kitchen sink, <laughs> you know, conglomerate of stuff that is just a lot harder to market and sort of capture people's imaginations in terms of pop culture and history. So for that reason, I think it's always going to struggle to compare with something like Thriller or any other music video because the main song, the main reason it's built is for a song that's not even mentioned in the title and it's not even a well-known song or a single. 
But if you look at all the slates when they're filming the behind the scenes, it doesn't say Ghosts, it says Too Bad because they're actually filming a music video for Too Bad that was going to be 10, maybe 15 minutes long, but it became this whole extravaganza that Michael wanted to present. So I hope for the best for it, and I hope, as everyone says, that they do it its justice and, and repackage it and remaster it and, you know, get more interest with the behind the scenes. But um, it's uh, it's going to be a tough sell to make it, you know, as memorable and as iconic as something like Thriller. But uh, I still love it. I'm of that era. So for me, it you know, has a personal connection. And I hope one day we can enjoy it in all its glory. And maybe they put it back in cinemas and we can all have a look at the behind the scenes and just really make the most of, of what it is. Because there's some truly great stuff in it. And I would say for me, it's my favorite let's call it a music video from the history album. It's my favorite short film from that album. So I mm. love it. Yeah. I love those thoughts. And you just made me realize as well, how much they kind of really got messy with the marketing for, for it even beyond the film's release when they put out ghost as a single. And I think they had on the line or a song like that was on it as well. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah, a very a confusing. Era. There's a single for <laughs> on the line that was part of the box set which was from a Spike Lee film, wasn't it? And and was it a Spike Lee film on the bus? Yeah, on the bus. Yeah, on the bus. And yeah. and and it's the soundtrack, Blood on the Dance Floor, which is an album, but not really an album with remixes for songs that were never. It's just it's just it's a very convoluted, messy thing. It's almost yeah, like right. a train wreck yeah. of a, of a planning and marketing thing that started in ninety two, ninety three with the conception, <laughs> and went for another four or five years and ended up being this weird box set with a soundtrack remix album with a single for on the line that's something else that's not on the blood did you get the box set yeah i have i actually i think i might have given mine to q i sold off a lot of my collection i moved around so much i couldn't keep everything it was basically a box with a vhs tape in a slip cover uh, the on the line single which i think was only one track from memory on there can't remember any, or maybe there might have been a couple of weird remixes or something but anyway and then the blood on the dance floor album so it's really just a blood on the dance floor album and a vhs tape and an extra cd single in a box there wasn't really much to it it was again it was a bit of a weird release it, it just didn't feel <laughs> cohesive or planned it was like what are we yeah. getting here and and pretty much you know everyone who wanted to buy that when it came out already had blood on the dance floor. How could you not have that album if you're a fan? Yeah. And then this box set comes out. It, it just, it was a bit weird. When are they going to put blood on the dance floor out on vinyl? I know there was like, there's like a limited amount of them out there from way back when apparently that like DJs had, but that's like the one thing they still haven't. I mean, instead I used we to get have to... a vinyl of it. I don't know. I since probably Q has it. I, I don't think I have it anymore. But there used to be a vinyl that came out at the time, but probably not a reissue. Yeah, and instead we get T-shirts with like lions and tigers on them and shit. Like, <laughs> come on. Yeah, that's got to come out because we all know Charlie Thompson just can't wait to get his hands on the "You Are Not Alone" Club <laughs> classic edit. <laughs> you know, he's gonna love that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've never been like much of a Halloween type gal. I'm really geeked to be here with you guys talking MJ and everything. Um, I really hope that the estate does end up 
promoting ghosts more and we do get more ghosts content in the future and overall just more content with Michael's later work because everyone just focuses on his first three albums which are amazing but no one really focuses on dangerous and everything after that and I hope that someday someday we do Great thoughts. So Hannah, as we mentioned earlier, you are working on a new documentary coming out on your YouTube channel all about This Is It. Uh, would you be able to tell us where you're up to with that and what the future holds for your channel? Well, I know a lot of people probably think that my This Is It doc is never coming, but it is. It just takes a lot of time. Gotta let it simmer, bathe in the moonlight, if you will, <laughs> but it will be out. <laughs> As for the future of my channel, after the This Is It series, I do plan to make more documentaries, but I'm gonna keep some of those ideas to myself, mainly because I don't want any of the locals to try to fight me on some <laughs> of the subjects that I wanna talk about. Thing, eh? <laughs> uh, cool, that sounds really exciting. And if people wanna engage with you online, Hannah, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Hannah Savage. Cool. All right, Paul. Now I know you're pretty incognito online, um, <laughs> so you don't you don't have any socials, do you? No, I'm off the grid. I like it that way. Jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be part of that mess. If anyone wants to find me, you know, contact the MJ cast, and they can they can find me. Yeah, sounds good. We can pass a message on to you. Now, Adam, we want to hear about where people can find you and what the future holds now that the writer's strike is is finished and uh, you're off and working again. What What's coming from, from Adam Green? And also, we need to talk about The Movie Crypt. Yeah, I was going to say, so my podcast, The Movie Crypt, we recently celebrated our 10th year. Uh, we are up to Yay. episode 542 at the time of this recording. Incredible. Uh, last week's episode... 541 actually was with Danny Wu, who this this crowd knows from his brilliant documentary Square One. A great, great interview. Highly recommend it. Let's see. We just did our 25th annual Halloween short film, which is called Halloween Socks. It was uh, created by a four-year-old because of the strike. We weren't allowed to, I couldn't write it, and we couldn't have any SAG actors performing. It's very funny. You can find that on the Aeriscope YouTube channel or just follow me on Twitter or Instagram. It's at Adam underscore Effin underscore green. The Movie Crips eighth annual Yorkiethon is coming up December 8th through 10th. Jamin and Q were on it once. It is our annual marathon to raise money for Save a Yorkie Rescue. To date, we've raised over a quarter million dollars and saved tons of dogs that have been abandoned and abused. It's something very important to me and my co-host, Joe Lynch. And now that these strikes are ending, SAG isn't over yet, but by the end of the year, they will be over. And then hopefully early next year, I'll be able to say which movie I'm actually making next. But it has been a hard three years with COVID canceling mm. everything. And then the strike right after that, which was the worst timing ever. But things are all about to get started again. Exciting. We'll be right there, ready to support it when you're ready to announce things. Thank you so much, guys. And of course, listeners who want to connect with the MJ cast can find us all over the internet. We're at themjcast.com. We're also on Twitter slash X slash Elon Musk's, whatever he wants to call it these days. Uh, we are on Instagram. We are on Mastodon. We are on threads and everywhere. So you can find us pretty much like if you go to our website, 
there'll be links to all of those different places if you want to connect with us on your platform of choice. You can also email us at themjcast at icloud.com. We get mail every week and it just brightens up our day whenever we get an, e- an email come through from somebody in you know, some corner of the planet that's talking about how much they love the MJ cast. And you know, that just, just gives us so much happiness and we share it in the group chat and love it. So please, um, you know, if you get a second, send us through some mail. That's really lovely when people do that. Uh, you can also support us in a couple of different ways. We have a shop where we sell you know, merch with some of our designs on them. So you can go to the mjcast.com slash shop. And then you'll be able to buy t-shirts and different things where you can support the MJ cast and Michael Jackson all at the same time. And if you'd like to donate to us, there's an option for you to do that as well as an optional donation. You can find the support or donation link at the mjcast.com slash donate. And even just swinging us a couple of dollars really helps us do lots of different things that we like to do, such as buying new uh, sound equipment or, you know, running our server costs and website costs and hosting for all the podcast files and all that kind of thing. And uh, we also like to give back through charity donations as well from, from that money that comes in. So if you feel in your heart you'd like to do that, feel free to as well. Uh, But I just want to wrap things up now just by saying thank you to all of our guests. Uh, Thank you so much, Adam, for coming back on the MJ cast. You are now an MJ cast veteran and I can't wait for you to come back on again in the future. Uh, Paul, uh, I don't know how many times you've been on now, maybe probably four or five. Yes, quite a few times. And it's always wonderful to chat with you, not only about your knowledge of Michael Jackson and how, how huge a fan you are, but also those crazy uh, experiences uh, that you've had in the past, you know, just from seeing ghosts with Michael Jackson in the same theater to the, that great story you told one time about performing Billie Jean live on stage with Prince. Like that's, I mean, who does? Like, honestly, <laughs> what? honestly, do you just like wake up in the morning and pinch yourself and go, yep, I'm Paul Black. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I, do. I used to pinch myself a lot more. These days I try and just chill out and live a normal, busy life. But uh, yeah. Some crazy, crazy, crazy stories, and and I, some of those will be featured in previous episodes. What was it? Twenty? I think it was twenty-five. Right place, right time. Black magic. Black magic. You called it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of those stories <laughs> come up in that episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And of course, Hannah, thank you so much for uh, making your debut appearance on the MJ Cast. We really have appreciated having you here. I hope you get to come back in the future as well. I hope you'll have me back. <laughs> Of course we will. And we can't wait for your upcoming YouTube documentaries to come out. I just cannot wait for This Is It because yes. I've heard through the grapevine that you might have interviewed a couple of people that uh, contribute to the MJ cast about their own experiences connected to This Is It. So super cool. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, let's wrap it there. I hope everybody has a good Halloween and gets a chance to sit down and watch Ghosts. Uh, and enjoy it like I did last night. Great film. I know we've touched on a couple of the little things we're nitpicking as, you know, hardcore OCD fans do, but in the end, we all love Ghosts. It's fantastic. Have a great Halloween, everybody. From me here at the MJ cast, from Charlie Thompson, Charlie Carter, Elise Capron as well, thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging with the MJ cast. We deeply value every one of our listeners and can't wait to put out more content in the future. Keep Michaeling.
that's a wrap. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Oh, nice. Thank you. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. H- happy Halloween.